to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host Paula Wiseman and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with, he's an actor, he's a singer, he's an improv legend, triple threat, it's only Mike McShane. How are you Mike? Hi, I'm really, I'm fine Paula, thanks for having me on. Um, we're doing it on Zoom so she's seen me sequestered in my my video uh, movie <laughs> den, which is a fake, fake background. <laughs> And it looks like, I look at it, I go, it's really, sm- I put different filters on it. Yeah. So it looks like I'm at a, a theater that is slowly catching on fire. Listen, I, I think I did it nostalgically because I was talking with somebody about my my early days in San Francisco. And um, me and we were college together. That's how we knew each other. We went to school together. I mean, improv. But what we used to do is skip school because San Francisco State was on the outer edge of San Francisco mm-hmm. and take the bus or, you know, take a tram in to the middle of the city to a place called the Strand Theater, which was in a really dodgy, it's always been slightly dodgy, but it was used to be the, the civic pride of the neighborhood in San Francisco. But it was an old uh, vaudeville house. They turned into a rep cinema. And for like a dollar fifty, wow. you could go up to the top and you could smoke dope, smoke cigarettes, bring a beer, and you could watch anything, like really trashy stuff. Yeah, and you could watch really cool stuff like you know an Agnes Varda rep- retrospective next to Oliver Stone's Night of the Lepus, <laughs> where he wrote a movie about killer money, that kind of stuff. So it was a very wide, it was a very Catholic bench. This cinema, and it was a great place to be, and it looked like the kind of thing I I'm sitting in, in usually right now, a dark old musty cinema with the upper deck being cruised by like old gay men. <laughs> and going, I'm not gay. I don't. I don't got a problem with you guys, but dude, I'm not gay. I always hit on Greg because he looked like an adenoidal teenager. <laughs> <It's> very true. <laughs> you know? And they they must have figured I was his daddy or something, and I couldn't be I couldn't couldn't be bothered. You talk <laughs> about being in this old, old musty cinema, but you're in you're in LA, and it's you know it's I hit you're getting beautiful weather over there. Like 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 London, it was more contained, and you could get around it on trams, on the cable cars, on the buses, and everything. so it was a city you could walk in and mm. walk through. And, and it was interesting. LA's, it's cool. I love LA, but it, you can only go to certain places. And then a lot of that's manufacturing because they took it down. Yeah. And after the Eisenhower administration destroyed a lot of the, what they call the red car here, uh, was these great cable cars where you went all over, streetcars all over from Venice Beach to like Glendale, mm. which is, is saying a lot. And in the early days of Hollywood, a lot of the stars and the people would get around to auditions via that way. Yeah, yeah. So they're on the on the streetcar. Um, there's a, Roscoe Arbuckle talks about meeting people, going to to audition for stuff when he first started out. Uh, Billy Wilder, when he even first came here, used to get around on them. And then gradually they went away. Um, in fact, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. The movie? It was a book called Who Killed Roger Rabbit? And it was like a seriously darker, much darker book. And the B story was about the destruction of the red lines right. to bring the city together and to break it up with also the racial uh, profiling of cartoon characters via the name and that sort of thing. They said it's about African-Americans, but that was one of those richer levels in that book mm. that, you know, when you read it, you got to the movie, you go, oh, that had to go. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know, you go to a movie, you go, wait, I read the book and this is like What's a really that? cool, and you took it out. <laughs> oh, buddy of mine's buddy of mine's in the tempest right now they took out all the the really bad stuff where like they're at the table and it, it clears away it's all maggots and stuff and 
they softened it up and I go, that's cool because it was a good production. And <laughs> I've never seen Shakespeare. No, exactly. You know, you go, okay, that's good. You know, and, and yet, you know, I was like, because Prosper was like the world's worst mid, upper mid-level executive boss. Here, I need you to get these papers, but it's the weekend, sir. I know, I know. But if you get these done, I'll give you the day off Monday. Ring. Hi, it's me again. What? It's Monday. Yeah, you need to come in. But I thought you said that Monday up. No, I'd like to, but, you know, okay, I can't do it. Okay, I'm going to turn you into a, into a frog. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm in. I'm back. I'm coming in. You know, that's his bargaining chip. I'll lock you up inside of a tree. Oh, what are you saying? That? Okay, okay. All right, lunch? Yes. <laughs> if you put it that way, you know. All right. Uh, he's, he's horrible. He's horrible. Um. But uh, in saying that, you know, I said, yeah, if somebody's never enjoyed Shakespeare and they see it, it's a well-done production. Mm. My friend's really good and it's Prospero. But they took out that little chunk of stuff that me, as a nerd, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Me. <laughs> the nerd candy. Taking out the, the, the stuff for all the nerds out there. But So I, I usually like to start off by talking a little bit about childhood. So it's something we don't normally find out too much about, you know, our, you know, comedy loves and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so what was what was young Mike like? I'm assuming I'm assuming you were, you would have been quite an outgoing kid. Yeah, I think I was um, I was a very imaginative, very young child. I was very imaginative um, and pr- relatively fearless. I didn't like to get in fights and stuff. I didn't like because I was a big kid. Some of that would come to you, you know, and it kind of didn't matter. I mean, um depending on the neighborhood you were either the fat kid or the less fat kid or there's somebody fatter than you it's almost like you always felt like you're going to a different country you want to have a passport you go how many fat people are here oh how many that wasn't even fat i was just a chunky kid you know but oh there's three of them i'm great you've already known them you've already known them and found out their psyches and and destroyed them i'll just walk on through but if it's just you in like dickhead town and you know <laughs> you've got brother, a couple of brothers and their friends you're like eh. so I, I i was the only kid so i i had that indomitable sense of self mm. so like when the first nun i was raised uh american irish catholic the first nun that to what i couldn't couldn't do uh i was like my ego was like I, how dare you you know and my parents my people would tell me what to do um so yeah i was always that I'm adopted, and so my mom and dad did not look like me at all. Yeah. Different eye color, everything. So I felt embraced, but sort of on the outside a little, just because I knew I looked different. By five, I was known I was adopted. Because I remember my mom told me, and I was trying to figure it out. Mm. I hadn't had any kid yet come up and be mean about it. And on a Saturday, I remember Saturday day, I saw David Lean's Oliver Twist on afternoon TV with the orphans yeah you yeah know? and i went oh <laughs> that's what i am okay yeah and so i literally i went i honestly i went to a store that day or the next rolled up my pant legs and stood in front of go hello governor <laughs> you know and doing the whole like you know chipper we chipper do drop a penny in the pocket hey mate you know and, and they called up and said mrs mcmahon it said <laughs> who's this kid your child is laying their child is up here talking funny asking for money and she came up and said what are you doing and i said i'm an orphan right she goes no you're adopted and <laughs> you've got us yeah got it's us. two different things you're not, you're not alone we love you and you got us how much money did you make i want a dollar 25 and she's like not bad yeah well done <laughs> yeah just give me a bit of the old you know good on you you know sent you uh, out the next day <laughs> 
wearing the fake outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing the, doing the hand wringing, you know. Bob, you saw that movie too? Yes. <laughs> That's it. If your dad oh, becomes but, uh, Fagin, I was, yeah, I had a big imagination. Um, say what? If your dad what? becomes your dad becomes Fagin, starts sending you out to work like really every nice day. Bill Sykes. <laughs> yeah, my dad'd be like a really nice Bill Sykes. Yeah, he just, like, hit me or beat anybody. He just be kind nice of surly and make you, you know, throw enough guy energy. You go, yeah, okay. What do you want me to do? All right, yeah, okay, good. Um, but uh, I had a pretty good. I had a Catholic upbringing. Uh, saw my first first dead person there. So I was like seven. And it was a priest that came to terrify us about communion. Mm. And then he died. Oh that was my God. first for like he came. Yeah, a guy who looked like George Burns, father, um, or like Colin. He looked like George Burns and he was Irish. He was full on from Ireland. And he had that sort of like uh, and he came in and go, All right now, children, I'd like to tell you a story about um the Holy Eucharist. And he would tell a story. Child went to the, the and he had the Eucharist put in his mouth, but he, he didn't swallow it. He came home. And he took it out of his mouth and he wanted to see if it was the body of Christ. So he cut it with the scissors and suddenly blood, great gouts of blood came out of the host. And we're like, what the f you know? And he's telling this story and um he finally goes, had him couldn't stop the blood. He was like knee deep in it, kind of thing. All the priest, priest comes over. Like a plumber, right? He goes, he goes like, opens the door like a super. I always was like, stand back, <laughs> you know, just, like and like a special effect in a movie. Goes, oh my god! Goes back here, you know, and then he goes in. So you know, many take the host, swallow it because it's the body of Christ. Have a good. So he tells us this horror story. It comes out good, and then leaves us. And there was like five minutes of silence. It was like the first audience that saw apocalypse. They're just going. And uh, then, like, a week later, he died. Oh, my God. Father Condon. That's right, Father Condon. And so he went to his funeral. And I remember, because he was small, the coffin seemed tiny or too mm. big. He was like, somebody had put, like, like a Jerry Mahoney ventriloquist doll in a coffin. Wow. And it was all done <laughs> up and, you know, powdered. And we're there. And we we had, I had the, um, oh, what's the movie? Three Faces of Eve. We had none that said, you can kiss him if you want. As we're there, supposed to, because we all go and kneel, say a prayer, and then get up and do the thing, leave the queue. Nurse and then there's the nun went, You can kiss him if you want. And I was like, No, <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> but just had a good Catholic, general Catholic upbringing. I hit puberty and then I became a problem. I was a really big, angry kid. Yeah. When I was 14, we had a car accident mm -hmm. and my mom took it uh, really physically. She bore the brunt of it. She was, we were, as we say in America, T boned. Right, um, right. So she had a botched surgery. So she spent the rest of her life in pain and lived on codeines. That was kind of rough. Mm. So I took it out of the world. But that got me in trouble. Then I got put in a, a mental hospital for seven wow. months uh, when I was just 15. And that wasn't great either. <laughs> so by the time I hit 18, I was kind of done with Kansas. And that's I joined the Army. To, wow. Uh, One exchange to the other, isn't it? You know? Well, yeah, I kind of, it's strange. I realized I, I grew up being quite aware of institutionalization as a concept for the in, to the individual being adopted and, mm. and uh, being checked on by social workers. Yeah. Uh, occasionally to my, to my mom's high anxiety. I do remember my mom getting really anxious about that. And, you know, I see its place, but literally it was like showbiz. It was like, brush me up. <laughs> suit on me like three in the afternoon on a tuesday i'm like six i'm like hello <laughs> i've been reading the works of tennyson thank you mother darling <laughs> <laughs> she really got got me sort of like that thing i was like around the house when she was like 
the greatest thing when they always tell the story is the, they would come by unexpected, well, I guess. And this woman called unexpected. I guess my mom really was intimidated by her. And she had a big car and we just gotten a small dog and the dog ran out to be, and the car ran over the dog and killed it. And that woman literally after that, truly went, I'm just going to call. You tell me everything's okay. And we're good. You know? And so my dad, although he said, you both are crying, lost the dog. Because the good thing is that woman never came over again. <laughs> my God. Yeah. So I suppose if it was worth killing a dog to make my mom happy, my dad was like, okay, I, I can live with that. I can live with him. You got to get that balance, you know? So, yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah, I grew up in an idyllic time. Uh, my parents were, were much, a bit older than my friends. Mm -hmm. My mom was born in 1912. My dad was born in 1910. So they're very different kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. To the 60s, hip families that you saw on TV. My parents were more Green Acres. Definitely my mom. More Kansas farm girl. Yeah. My dad was from Minnesota. He kind of looked like Joe Biden. Irish-American. Real sort of like, hey there, sport, how's it going? <laughs> you know? They're both good people. They put up with me. I was I was really a one of like I said, when I was fifteen and stuff. I wasn't I was not easy to handle. And yeah. Uh, and it was pretty some of it got really rough and I was rough on them. Um so I always look back on it like I owe, you know, you always feel the pressure. I don't mm. I did, I did. Some adopted kids don't at all. And so I don't like to say if you're adopted, you're this. Mm. Each individual responds to it differently. And I had it great. My mother was uh uh, my birth mother, Mary Catherine Lewis, mm -hmm. was a Jibwe, a full indigenous wow. Canadian who moved to Michigan, American, American and Canadian mm -hmm. border rights, and uh, just moved from the reservation in Ontario, had a year in Michigan and became pregnant. I don't know who my father was because I'm born out of wedlock. So I truly am a fat bastard. <laughs> and I'm singularly proud of that. Uh, we, we love you, Mike. We love you. Well, I do. That's you why I, that's where you came, embraced me. If I came on your show, I went, I'm a fat lying bastard. You guys went, wrong. Are you funny? Oh, I fair play. Come on in. That's all that you matters. <laughs> so, I mean, what was the it's... dream? Obviously, you had, the, you had this very colourful childhood. What was the dream as a kid? I mean, you don't, obviously, a lot of kids don't think, oh, I'm going to try acting. I'm going to go to drama school and do, you know, study Shakespeare. What was the what was the dream? Was there any kind of goal when you were in your teens? I, I knew I was I knew I could be funny. I liked laughing. I liked making people laugh for all all the reasons, for the panoply reasons. It wasn't just to stop, you know, somebody beating up on me or giving myself identity. It was because it was not just. It was all of those. There was the rewards of somebody dropping their guard if you made them laugh, somebody you might have been intimidated by, and you go, oh. And then there are other people who are jealous that you could make people laugh, that wanted to be funnier than you. Mm. And I would be like that with other people. So it ran the spectrum. Now that I'm older, I look at the spectrum. And I wasn't necessarily unhappy. I was just really anxious. And after being put in the hospital, I was really, I developed more of a thing to get between me and people just in case it went south so I could get out of there. Mm. So one of my closest friends I grew up with told my friend, he goes, you know, you're pretty much the same when you got out, except you really looked over your shoulder mm. all the time, you know, um, because being Catholic, I hadn't know who I was. 
yeah. and sexually and all of that. And this was a time then being gay could make, well, being homosexual was considered an aberration, mm. a mental one, and was treated as such, you know? And so all those things you would want to explore as a person. Yeah, yeah. You were fraught with that little extra touch of, because Catholicism was, you know, full of Catholicism. I only got, I say, I got kissed, only got kissed by a priest once. And that was in a summer camp in Colorado. And I was having a miserable time. And I was sitting on my little bunk bed crying. And this priest was like really good looking. I don't know if they say it in America, Father, what a waste. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because he was like really like, you know, Montgomery Clift. Oh, priest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the hot priest. He was the hot priest. <laughs> and I was crying. He was like on the bunk and he was like, what's the matter? And I go, you know, oh, I was crying about nobody liking me. And he's like, was really like, you're a good kid. I really like you. You know, and you're really good. And someday they'll know that you've got a talent. And I did this thing. Someday you'll, they'll get. Yeah. And he, then he reached up and he kissed me on the, on the lips and then went away. No tongues, no extra moisture, no snogging, no pulling away and looking at you. None of the stuff that makes you go, hmm. Where might this be going? <laughs> and, and then just backed off. And I remember, but doing this sort of like kid thing where somebody does something that's new information. Yeah. And you spend about two minutes going, trying to process what was, what was that? Yeah, all the way inside, you know, exactly. Like you see a, a version of you on a bicycle going from window to window, getting yeah. more information and going, ah, and then falling off the bike, you know. So, you know, the church itself, I want to be a priest. So, yes. That was it. So I thought mm -hmm. being a priest would be interesting because you have the smells, the bells, you got the drag, you got good lighting. Uh, the script is okay, generally. Yeah. You get a little open open area where you can talk to God and you know, do a, a sermon. I didn't feel bound in by Catholicism because I thought I thought it was kind of show busy. Because when I was a kid, it was still the last of, uh, right before Vatican II. So the mass was in Latin and I could uh, ape that. I could pretend I was speaking Latin. So it was like, you know, look, I'm in Harry Potter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, oh, you know, Nophilius rectus secundum, my lord. You know? <laughs> everyone you looks know? good. In, everyone looks good in black, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you got the robes during the yeah. festival, you know, during fall and autumn. And, and it was really pretty good, you know? And I was an altar boy, so I did the whole thing. Also, I made my dad, you know, it was, I think, to impress my father, yeah. who was a stone, like I said, a stone Irish Catholic. Mm. I, had a, I had a toy hutch, and I went home one day and drove an alpha and an omega on it and the lamb of god and the little sideways cross because they draw and it was my toy chest and i got like a a towel and wrapped around my neck and a goblet and i did mass and my mom saw me doing it and went Matt, Matt, come here and he came out and i turned around and he was you know like <laughs> he'd do it you know he goes oh my god he's you know, it's like laying some toys out in front of a child and <laughs> he's, like, he's the next dalai lama <laughs> You know, my dad was like really, really into it. And um, he kept his faith all the way to the end. I mean, yeah. he never let go of it. And, and uh, so, yeah, I got out and I was 18. I joined the army and I was in the army till I was 21. And uh, so like, like just moving backwards quickly, it was an idyllic mover childhood. Mm. I was a member of the NRA right. when I was a kid. Yeah. Because it was a gun safety organization. It wasn't. Different times, different times. Satanic. It is. Well, you do, you do, and you learn that. You know, you learn the things. All these, all the things you learn about these hmm. are flexible and permeable things. Yeah, and they can change. And sometimes it, it's a struggle to get them back to where they were, or whether really, whether you really want them the way they were. You know, um, and obviously in the states we're going through a big upheaval of that. We're going. You know, each state decides to. It has its own time machine and runs. Mm. Wants to go back. 
1940, you know. Um, so joining the Army was right at the end of Vietnam. I went on the buddy system with a guy so I could, you get guaranteed a job, a, a kind of a job you want, not just like picking up a weapon and shooting. So I got two placements for 03 Bravo 20, which was an entertainment specialist, mm. which meant you worked at the NCO clubs. Right, right. Or sort of, I would have been comparable to, my story in a way is not dissimilar to the goons. Yeah, yeah, I, who, I was thinking that actually. Yeah, you very similar. Yeah, yeah, so you did funny skits and did stuff for the soldiers and demobbed and you, you know, you, you know, I consider myself Poundland Harry Seacom. <laughs> by, by, you know, <laughs> Those are big boots to fill. <laughs> oh, come on. I remember I I did once I was cracking Greg up. I did something I did like if I ruled the world, every man would spend five days in jail. And it was just everything awful. I would execute people on a whim if I ruled. I just started like, but seeing that like in that that glorious can-do voice Welsh of his, you know, yeah, that voice, yeah, beautiful voice was just saying awful things, <laughs> and. Uh, but the guess because I am, I honestly admit, I am, I am a pervert. I am perverse. <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> I am a perverse human being. One of my favorite. I saw a bumper sticker in L.A. a couple of years ago, a car, and it said, "I'm swerving because I'm perving," and I went, "Oh, I love that." Just, just give him two lanes on either side, folks. <laughs> and you followed him, <laughs> and the rest is I history. Followed him. <laughs> Yeah, I followed him to Frenchies, Frenchies divine something. Um, yeah, so got on the army in California. Yeah, I mustered out in California, and decided to stay because why not? And and, uh, and why not go to San Francisco? Because I wanted to be a hippie when I was a kid, and it was a what it had promised to be. I think it's different now, but then that's another old man. I mean, look, I'm wearing <laughs> San Francisco mind troop shirt. It was a both Greg and I come out of that, and yeah, we often think that our success on whose line was helped by the fact that we weren't L.A. Mm-hmm. comedians, yeah, we weren't New York comedians, because San Francisco and Chicago were blue collar towns, uh, big labor, big left wing towns, um, uh, immigrant neighborhoods, all over, um, and and San Francisco because of Robin Williams, you go in the hippie movement. It's all very, very loose and open. I mean, historically, so even in the 19th century, do you know who the, do you know who Emperor Norton is? No. So in the 19th century, during the gold rush, um, there was a trader, I think he was Scottish, Mm -hmm. uh, an American by that point of, of Scottish extraction, named Joseph P. Norton. And he loved to gamble. And he was gambling one day and he put ships that were going to come into port on the table. I went, I'll cover my bets with that. You all know I'm good for it. And they went, yeah, of course, you're, you know, you're Joseph Norton. Uh, he did it and went to go and pay it. And he found out that his ships had foundered off Good Hope and lost, he'd lost everything. And he, according to the legend, went screaming off into the night. And his compatriots went, well, it's the last we'll see of him. And like, go off the bridge sort of thing. They didn't see him for months. They figured he died. He showed up two months later, dressed in full military regalia, with one of those hats, one of those big long naval hats, yeah, yeah, with a plume, and he declared himself Emperor North, Emperor of the United States, protect 
protector of Mexico and bodyguard of Lily Langtree. He printed his his own money and ate at the finest restaurants in San Francisco and paid with this printed money. And people would go, your lordship. And they would take the money. Mark Twain. Mark Twain said he's, you know, he had the run of the city. He had two dogs named Bummer and Lazarus. And they would go and eat at these tables with him. And he was just mad as a, as we say in Kansas, mad as a cat's ass at midnight. Just amazing. When he died, he had a state funeral on a beer. His dogs laid by his coffin. Mark Twain and Hart, Qua- Hart Crane, another famous California writer, delivered eulogies to him and he laid in state. So what I'm saying is San Francisco is like, the spirit of San Francisco is, hey, and they go, is he going to hurt anybody? No. <laughs> Oh, That's okay, cool, man. cool man. Right on, brother. Right on. Rock out. Live with it. Go. Yeah. And I think that's that's I'm I feel that was the grace of that city for me. You were friends with Robin Williams uh back in the day. No, no, I I have to amend that. When he died, I was so somebody said you were trying to go, of course. He was everybody's friend. Yeah, yeah. Friend. I suppose in that in that network, you know. But there but other before like Rick Overton and Bobcat Goldthwait, uh all those guys came. I didn't come up with him. He's already mm, a star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I could say Greg's my friend, because mm. Greg and I came up together. Or if I've done a movie with somebody, but in that way, I feel I inarticulately gave myself a credit because my friend Rick was like, well, you were a friend. I go, I know. I go, I didn't mean I wasn't trying to like, you know, push into the picture. Yeah. But uh, when they did this benefit, and then later I found out, because Rick told me what had happened, why he did yeah. what he did. And it becomes understandable. Um, I mean, I always, one thing I always say, the most boring story in the world that a show business person can tell is what a nice person Robin Williams is. There's only maybe two or three people go, or quite a few women probably, what a dickhead. You know? <laughs> but, you know, he was that. Yeah. That, and he was also subversive. So unlike it being, because like the suspenders and the rainbow look that was all mm. this outside image of the clown gone bad in a way yeah you know because i say a san francisco theater scene is like you're in gold gate park and you're walking through a little wooded area also the huge hippie dude comes out of the woods thinking of cannabis with rainbow suspenders a couple of hilarious dick jokes he goes you know that the government is that gives you some wild fun conspiracy theory and some beautiful heartfelt spiritual uh analogy of something and it goes hey do you want some of this and like oh cool man or <laughs> they go hey can i borrow 25 bucks yeah all right here's 25 bucks all right man may the light of raw be with you and he's gone and you've been entertained you're high you got some political dialogue he scared you a little and you're going, <laughs> that's san francisco that's san francisco theater yeah that's what you're supposed to do like chicago theater is supposed to get down roll up a sleeve and punch you and go those tough man you know, David Mamet. Fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. You know. <laughs> they have their vibe. But I think that me and Greg's it's helped us connect with British mm. people. Like, um, because we came to right when Thatcher and Reagan were having their love fest. We came to the UK. And so being an American was suspect right off the bat. You know? And so there was a lot of like really liberal, like, oh, perhaps you should see my ACLU card. <laughs> <laughs> But people accepted this very quickly. And to be frank, I think Greg and I are the only Americans that play with comedy sport players. We're the only ones that ever 
hit with them because of who's lying. And the guys were great. And I've had some of my greatest times in my life in, with London audiences. I really have. That sounds mockish. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I got, Co I Colin Mockery, Colin Mockery is uh, Canadian, isn't he, as well? He's so. Canadian. Yeah. So, you know, he, fuck him. He doesn't count. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Colin, oh. if you're listening. <laughs> oh, oh, he'll get over it. Slappy. <laughs> Again, like Robin, the most boring story is what a good man he is and what an amazing thing in the yeah. doctrine of improv that Colin can't do excellently, if not, yeah, hands down. So he's he's always, yeah. Maybe it's the Canadian thing, though, you know. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Because a lot of good, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of UK comedy we met Phil Nickel that you know mm. comes comes from Canada, Corky the Juice Pigs with Phil's in then so that was my time in discovering all these people. Yeah, and, so I mean, you, you studied you you did the whole drama thing, you did Shakespeare. So how did the how yeah. did the how did the comedy thing? I wouldn't have said improv would be a very natural step to take. No, no, it wasn't. Well, well, well observed, Paula. Um, <laughs> It wasn't. I was. I wanted to be a theater gig because I think the middle class kid in me mm -hmm. kind of wanted to go. Well, if I was going to go into showbiz, which is notoriously <laughs> unemployable, then I should start with the highest valued, not right. for money, mm -hmm. but valued within its structure. Because being Catholic, the aesthetics of something and its value probably appealed to me. And so doing theater was good. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a big voice. Uh, I had a big personality. I had some talent. So in junior college, you know, I was a big fish in a small pond. But I did a lot of character roles. Then I moved to San Francisco and did not only street, no street theater, but really small level theater. Mm -hmm. And um, but I got into a company called the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival. And that was run by a guy named Dakin Matthews, whom you could read about in the New York Times today. He uh, known as 90s, I think. Dakin is a scholar, a Shakespeare scholar, an American one, who studied at the Vatican. Oh, and wow. He was one of the youngest people ever to be accepted to the Vatican University. He ended up going to, to New York and being in the first original company of the Juilliard Theater Company with David August Stiers and Kevin Klein and mm. all those people. He taught them Shakespeare. He taught Robin Williams Shakespeare. He taught Denzel Washington Shakespeare. He, and then he, Came to California because that's where he's from originally. Came to Berkeley and him and his wife Ann McNaughton ran this company, and they hired uh, local actors. So as an apprentice, it was me, Andre Barr, and Annette Benning were apprentices. In this oh wow! And it was just amazing. And it was I was so out of my element educationally. I was just you know I was like a junior college, San Francisco State majoring in. Hey, let's get stoned and watch shit, man. You know, no, no, you know. But the theater department there was good in both the places I went. And the theater department were good teachers and they encouraged my ability. Mm. And they also encouraged my not being funny. Is as Because then I got to the thing where you're being, you know, a big guy, you make people laugh. And you're kind of like the jester who gets down with his bed, closes the door. It's like, you know, I hate you. You got really like, I'm, I'm more than being funny. Yeah, I had that syndrome, you know, the client wants to be Hamlet, you know, and uh, Greg and I had a teacher named Mr. Tyrrell, Tom Tyrrell, and he was a great Irish-American character man, sonorous, ponderous boy, and uh, he was really a lovely guy. 
He'd loan you money if you didn't make rent. He'd give you money for rent to get through the month when you're a student. Never asked for you to pay it back. He um, would buy, if you did one of his shows, you'd go out and have drinks out. He was really effusive and beautiful. And um, he cast me as Polonius in Hamlet. And I wanted to play Claudius because I liked the role. I liked the idea of being the bad guy. And Polonius is funny. Right? It's supposed to be humorous. So I went down and complained to him. I said, why can't I read you Claudius? I want to be Polonius. You know? mm. I don't, why can't I do Claudius? I don't want to do Polonius because he's, he's funny. And he swung around in his chair and went, Michael, shut your fucking mouth. And I was like, whoa, God, he's never cursed before. He goes, he goes, you're funny. It's a gift. There are actors that you admire that would give their eye teeth and their right nuts to be funny naturally. And you're also a good actor. You have two gifts. Don't play a race with them. Accept what you do. Can you do that? Yes. He goes, good. He would open his drawer up and pull out a ball of scotch. He'd pour you a shot. He'd have a shot with him. Because it's American. I went, I know you. <laughs> and I, and, he was, and Greg, it was the same with Greg. Greg's assistant directed him. He was the assistant director when he did Hamlet. And Greg, I don't know if he tells the story. I'll tell it. So I was in the show. I was playing Polonius. The guy who was playing Hamlet, I was jealous of because he was my girlfriend's ex. Oh, God. So I want to show him up. This is, come on, I'm in my 20s. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I'm not proud. I'm not proud of it. But you want awards and all, and you get it. No, we want so it. This I is what we want. <laughs> I can step behind the heiress, and I fall out just like, and I fall out, and I lay on my back. This is like during a, a run-through before we did it. And I kept my eyes open in a rictus of death. And so I'm keeping my eyes open during the Claudius, during the, the Hamlet and Gertrude scene, which is a long scene. Yeah. And my eyes are watering. They're just, you know, I'm kind of doing that thing where you're like half blinking so you don't go into a full defy, you know, that I'm going to show the guy playing Hamlet. And also Mr. Tyrell goes the audience. Um, Michael. Yes, Mr. Tyrell. Michael, just fucking die. <laughs> Oh, no. Please just die. I went, okay, Mr. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. He just like oh. swatted me down so beautifully. Just fucking die. You know, and I, I keep that as like, I wish I had a sampler. I put that on a sampler, you know, because an improv, you get <laughs> the, the night, the thing with niceness and improv can kill you because you have six people doing a scene, right? And the scene is effectively over. Something's involved with somebody who's the main character. But then, to be fair, everybody gets to have a scene mm. about who they were. You know, you start to be two nights, and all of a sudden, the ending's gone, and you've got six more people, and you see the audience going, "What? What? What's going on? What happened? I thought this shit was over, man." <laughs> you know. And so, in your mind, you know, not for anybody else, just for you as the improviser, always have like, just fucking die, just do something, help them, and just die. Go off, come as another character and go, he got hit by a truck. He loved you. And then leave, you know. And then, you know, <laughs> let people breathe. Give the audience a break. But it's very, you know, he, he was a marvelous man. So I was lucky to have good teachers, generally speaking, but not in a, because San Francisco State wasn't a, a fancy school. It was a public school, basically, for, as we say in America, a public university. It was like a large junior college, like hmm. a large trade school or like something you'd see in Bristol. You right, know, right. More like a 
crystal. It's got a similar vibe. Um, so yeah, so I learned that. And then I was doing Shakespeare. I was out of my league. I was getting really anxious, overcompensating maybe. And Greg called me up and was talking. And he said, well, why don't you join our improv group? I did improv in college once. I did it with Greg's group, Faultline. Um, I had a great time. I did. I had a great time with Greg. But it didn't hook me. Mm. And then we were talking on the phone. And he went, so I got, got this group up at Snake Club called Lips. You know, you could come and be in the group. And Because and, um, he really had no idea when he was younger. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. And he goes, and he has this look. He does this beautiful. I love like, Hey, man, you know, it, yes. it'll be like being in a band. It'll be like being in a band. And I was like 20 something. So I went, all right, I'm in. And I'm, glad I, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm glad I did it because it made me shake off being right, mm. which you always suffer from. And, and just human beings and in our businesses, you know, being a stand up. Yeah. I'm, it must be like, you know, especially you guys. I mean, I watched Greg be a stand up, come up and be a stand up. I watched the horrible, oh, God, <laughs> the shit he would have to go through. And, and you know, it, being an improviser was like being an actor to me. Mm. It was because we started doing, I started doing improv right when Keith Johnstone's book came out. And so that was the new, you know, that was the new model. And and as being a theater actor, it's easier to embrace that. I dug that because of ensemble. Mm-hmm. Five of us can make something happen. Yeah, you know, I always wanted to be with a group and play with a group. I didn't do sports because I was a big guy in football. They always wanted me to be aggressive, and I wasn't aggressive. And so, you know, they called me names and shit. And they go, you don't have team spirit. And I go, why would I have team spirit? Because they just called me a fat faggot. Yeah. Why do you, why do you want what do you want from me? Love? You know, I didn't have the words to say that. Inside, I thought that, but that's was like, you'll be okay. You know, like you do when you're a kid. Um, so I was, it was never, never struck me. I admired some people who were in it, but I never felt like they wanted me. I was the fat guy. They took me, had a purpose for me, and that was it. Actually, improv did the same thing, but it was just freer. And, yeah, yeah. And more positive and, hmm. and, and more five of us would get something it would work and we you know that thing where you run backstage you're like whoa you know yeah and you're pumped yeah you know you made it happen and we i did the artwork for this the fault line it became really popular because we just did one thing in the city that had all the rainbow suspenders about improv and the the magic of the mind we looked like we looked like cast of uh reservoir dogs (laughs) we all dressed in black suits yeah black ties and uh, we were all really like, you know, fuck you. We're improv. And it worked. Some people hated us because of that. Because we didn't embrace it. We did imagine we did sketches and improv. We used the techniques of Johnstone. We didn't harangue the audience. But mm. we were political, social. You know, our sketches were about poverty and in, in the town and, and unhoused, about the discrepancy of the government. We had Reagan in office. It was all there to go after and so we did that as well as do improv. It was really it was me, Brian Loman, Sandy Althouse, uh, Kathy Arcolio, Greg, the guy named Jeff Nathanson was on our music. And it was just a great place to be in, as a theater person. A guy named Oscar Eustace ran a theater called the Eureka, where they did the first table read of Angels in America. Greg, I mean, Oscar now runs the, the public theater in New York, Joseph Papp's Theater. 
So there just happened to be all these stimulating and amazing people. Yeah, perfect storm, there. I suppose. Because it wasn't, it was in New York and it wasn't LA. They influence you. They Those towns influence what you think you are as an athlete. If you come here young and you're not fully cooked. So I'm glad that I, I got cooked. I got baked <laughs> in San Francisco, man. Got baked. Dude. <laughs> totally, man. So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a totally different discipline, isn't it? Like stand-up and improv, to me, are two totally different creatures entirely. I mean, having that, I don't know what you'd call it, to stand on a stage in front of a, a crowd and just reel off this, you know, your your dialogue and your jokes. Well, and stuff. you're spinning with five. You're you're spinning with five. Yeah. By yourself, it's much it's much harder. Uh, whatever it is that makes you think you're doing it right. I mean, Greg, for when he started, did the, you know, did some airplane food, did those kind of jokes, did that stuff. They were all beautifully constructed. They're yeah. all funny. I remember one of my favorite jokes. Two things. Greg did one where he goes, you know, Roman soldiers sound off. I, 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 V, 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 I. That's it. I mean, come on, they're in their 20s. Ah, oh, simple but perfect. He closed his set. It was right during the height of the Republican scaremongering of, of HIV and AIDS. Where they, you could get AIDS from a water glass or a toilet seat. That horrid shit. And Greg closed his set one night going, and remember, ladies and gentlemen, you can't get AIDS from a water glass unless you relax and get it all the way up. The audience, <laughs> you know, the audience is like for about eight seconds was silent, and they were, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they just Everyone's like, did he did, went, did he say that? And he, what he did is, and, and then he did, and he was one of my first. My friend gave me one strong object: like, you can kill the beast with a joke. Mm. The joke has to be have the beast in it, so they see it, and they don't, and they go, oh. Yeah, and it is making fun of the ridiculousness of the fear, attacking the beast of the in the fear, and he was the first one of the first guys I saw do that. You know, confirmed as his always has that he had it, he had it already. You know, and he just had to find the places and and then the shape the platform whose line gave he and I a platform, an international platform. Yeah, I mean, most most of the listeners, I suppose, will probably remember you from your your legendary performances on Who's Line back in the day, and your particularly your bromance with Tony Slattery. We loved. Yes, yes. Well, it was easy to love Tony. Oh, Tony he's very generous, and he was just so, so, so handsome and so. Mm, he's so talented, and also being an ex-Catholic, we both shared the heretical and the awful. I mean. I don't. We never. I don't think they ever showed. They did a Who's Line Christmas show, and I don't think they still show. They don't show it anymore because basically he comes on. We're like a three of us are the three wise men, and we're drunk. Me, Greg, and Tony, and we're pissing about. And he goes over and snogs Mary, and then drop kicks the baby Jesus like a football, like does like poont makes the noise, and the audience is like, in the house is like, what the hell? It went, it went really bad. It went really bad. And Greg, and Greg leaned in and he goes, dude, have you got your return ticket? And I go, yeah, I do. I got it. It's actually in my bag. Start the car. It's Jim Sweeney say, start the car. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and there's another thing. We got we got Jim Sweeney. We got Steve yes. Sweeney. We got Andy. Rest his soul. We got Neil Malarkey. Yeah. Who did the, the first really English thing that made me go, what? We got really drunk. The players got drunk one night. In fact, we closed the original comedy store 
on the other side, not the original one, one on the other side mm-hmm. of Leicester Square. Don Ward gave it because we were the last act on the stage where it was shut that Sunday night. He gave us the keys. He said, clean up the bar, have a good time, boys. And we crawled out of the basement at like 4.30 in the morning, just blazing drunk and sitting in Leicester Square, you know, and Neil, who's like so English and so sweet. <laughs> and he turns to me and goes, do you know, that's be terribly difficult being so fat. And I was like, <laughs> looked at him like what motherfucker to my you know and then i looked at him and i went no he really means it <laughs> he's really curious he's honestly and sweetly trying to connect with me and i was like oh well you know and i went God, these people are so wonderful lee and you know lee and andy and jim and richard it was all really so I, i'm sorry I, you know i mean i wish something no, i'm sorry just some people oh when i was hanging out with something and i go all my great heroes, that my greatest experiences, other than with Greg and the group in San Francisco and improv, most of them been with the advisors in the UK. You know, I, I wished I wished um, I had a more interesting Hollywood side to it. <laughs> those guys, they you know, it was a the show. Who knew? Oh yeah, yeah. You, you you're gonna make your name off of doing improv and TV. Sure, that's great. <laughs> But it's so, it was so, so loved, so, you, know, you know, such but, a loved, was, you know, such a beloved thing. In it, the, it was, you know. The timing was right. Yeah, Channel 4 did the right yeah, move, yeah. put it on the right time. It, you know, it, it had its position. It was on BBC Radio first, like Radio 4. And I'm glad the BBC didn't pick it up. Because mm. I think they might have tried to control it. Yeah, exactly. And make yeah. it more BBC-ish. And 4 was just so rampantly Seamus Cassidy. Yeah, oh, what a, a legend. Legend of a man. Oh, my God. Yeah. And educated me so beautifully. I remember one day in this office, hey, Mike, come on and come here, come here. And he's talking to me, gap tooth and the glasses. Kind of looks like an evil Billy Bunter. Like, yeah. You know? And he's like, and he's like, have you ever read The Third Policeman? Do you know who Flat O'Brien is? And I go, no. And he goes, you, you're Irish American. You need to read that. You need to read that. He goes, you want to talk about, he goes, somebody should make a movie. You should make a movie, The Third Policeman. I'm like, what? So I read it and going, I, no, I couldn't. This is impossible. It was amazing. And I realized that that story, I've seen that story only because that's the first story using that is he or is he not potentially. And not being totally morbid. It being a weird adventure. Not being like uh, Oxbridge. It's, uh, it was like, it was absurd and dark. And, and then I read The Poor Mouth and I got hooked on him. On Flan O'Brien, and it's yeah, it, it opened that to John Keane, John B. Keane, and all these other writers that I didn't have the natural curiosity to explore. And then my dad and I, my dad was ninety. We took I took him to Dublin. We got to see a production of At Swim Two Birds. They did at the Abbey, and that was great because it was down in the, was in the Peacock, I think. Yes, yeah, 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 the tiny pitch yeah. on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad was like, "What the hell is this?" And he, but he started <laughs> laughing. He was like. You know, and I see that whatever that Irish thing is, I'm 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 not even Irish. I'm like Ojibwe. I'm I'm almost half half indigenous and almost half Scottish. So you know, but uh, my dad really that was great to share that with him. I look that's one of my fondest memories of watching really absurd, not watching some sort of like oh Jesus, oh look this, oh, oh Begara, yeah yeah yeah, oh because of Begara, you know. <laughs> No, but there's you know. a very there's a, seems to be a very strong connection be, between comedians and Flan O'Brien's. You know, so many so many comedians are fa- are fans of Flan's Flan's work. 
he builds deep absurdity. Mm. So in Swing Two Birds, he has that essay about the service he offers annotating your books in your library to make you appear more intelligent and the depth to which what you get with each price range just shows the paucity of, you know, kind of give you, it's a very funny, but very directly like all this labeling art and all, all the stratifying art and all the hierarchical bullshit. It gets all passed down even to the consumer that has, you know, Oh, this is like the first draft of like, and you're like, who gives a fuck really? And you're just getting sold. You're getting sold extra book plate and, and, and binding when you can find the same knowledge in a, in a dog-eared copy in a, a crappy bookstore, mm. which I love. Uh, there used to be a really crappy bookstore in San Francisco. It's gone now called McDonald's Books. And it's in Virginia, I can't remember, Hemingway or Virginia Woolf, a clean, nicely lit place for books. It was one of these quotes about what you love. And this place had a sign saying, a dirty, poorly lit place for books. And it had been there since the 1880s. Oh. And it had all these books. And once I've, I've sold as a couple of rare books, and this guy named Itzak, who was about three feet tall, with a really thick uh, European, New York Yiddisha accent. And his wife was my size, who ran around in a moo-moo. And like it was on like <laughs> antidepressants. And he would sit on, literally sit on a phone book to get above the platform. Wow. It was like Dickens. The shells were groaning, bending with stuff. And he would say, how's the arts of Thespis today? <laughs> I go, oh, fine. It's like, how's it going? He goes, we have some new Shakespeare's in, some cookbooks. He would tell you like, what came in. If you're an actor, you'd go and get all the play scripts for cheap for 25 cents. So if you're doing a scene, and, and so you, I'd go to the Shakespeare section, which was also so far back that prostitutes would take their their customers back there. And so you'd go to go and you go, I think I'll get the much, ooh, no, ooh, much ado about something. Back in, in what, 10 minutes? That's right. That's right, honey. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Where they were sitting, you'd go, okay, I won't be looking in there. <laughs> It was great. It's wiping it was down great. the books. Wiping. Totally. Michael Jackson used to, to actually go to San Francisco in a limo, put a, a particle mask on and go yeah, and yeah. look for stuff because he would just love to shop. It was because San Francisco, like London, like Edinburgh, mm -hmm. not like Sheffield even. If cities were reading and reading books and stuff is part and parcel of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a literary, it's a literary city, like New York is to anybody who likes literature. And, um, you know, uh, and Greg's wife, Jennifer, worked at City Lights, which is a world-famous bookstore. Great place to be stimulated with great corners. That's why I like the corners in it. Mm. It doesn't have as many corners. London has cor corners. <laughs> London's full of corners. Good Lord, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, of course, it's, it's, it's thrilling. And Tony, back to Tony, mm. Tony took me out to... The different restaurants, some of the different nightclubs, some of the different corners of Soho. <laughs> but I still just say, wow. Um, Tony was a hedonist, you know, is a yeah, hedonist oh, yeah. and lives that very fully. And uh, but at the same time, we we got along really well. I, mm. just, I would let him crawl all over me. Just <laughs> no, but there was it was like a proper bromance between the two of you. We you know, we absolutely loved it. Whenever you interacted with each other, it was just it was gold, you know. He was he was he was the evil Catholic school chum who was smarter than me and more adventuresome than me, but never made me feel bad. He was kind of like, come on. Yeah. You know, it was never a question of of 
calling me down to get into something with him. It was always a perverted adventure. <laughs> and he had that sense, and he was so bright yeah. that he could occupy areas like, you know, I mean, listen, if you can sit down and just chew the fat about nothing with Stephen Fry, which mm. is what he still can do, mm. you know, those him and him and Richard were very important because they were the outliers of that system of 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 wit and that and then the wit was still very open and so and those guys also told me stories of the things they you know you'd have to go through with those you know legacy people going is it you know coming up to them and going isn't it lovely when that people like you come here you know that sort of thing <laughs> people feel, like you <laughs> yeah people like literally yeah a bit of that a bit of that you know you know, Richard. Richard's from Froome, and yeah, he was from the west coast of Ireland. You know, I went to we went to gig in Froome. He showed us around, and it's like me from Kansas. It'd be like you know, let me show you Scandia, Kansas, and we're done. Okay, yeah. and, uh, you know, <laughs> without bagging on it now, without dissing it. Yeah, there it is. That's there it. it <laughs> but, um, and I'm not bagging on Froome. We had a we did a show there. And they treated us like royalty. Oh, it's an amazing place. Amazing. Coronation pot. We had like a no, uh, like a chicken and ham pie. This mm-hmm. woman made. I remember, and I remember Richard. I go. Is this? She goes. He goes. I didn't know they were here. But it was really lovely. There was. Really, uh, I've had some of the most hospitable welcomes in my life uh, going through the UK. My favorite. One of my favorite towns is Durham. Mm-hmm. I love Durham. You know, I could um oh my one of my heroes at Durham right here. Bill Bryson. Oh, very good. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I did I narrated a couple of his first books he did. Oh wow. And we we had a correspondence for a bit and he signed this. And then I finally lived in Durham because I love the cathedral. I love the giant uh knocker that's for sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I love the wending of the town because it's a pilgrim's town. Oh my lord, I just I could spend my life there. I really, because it's just the right size. Yeah, he, com- river. he comes across as such an everyman, you know? I think so. I think he was a guide to me to be, people who are much smarter than me, mm. um, Americans who found that audience and were just really trying, this is great. This is great. So what prompted the move to the UK? So when you, when you ended up coming over and doing Who's mm-hmm. Line... Whose line was such a hit that they offered me a contract to do right. the big one? Yeah, Sandy Toxvig and S and M with Tony, and it would require me living there. Yeah, yeah. So Karen, Karen, and I moved, and we lived in Disneyland. We lived in Hampstead because it's not <laughs> oh, really God. a part of the. You know, what I'm saying yeah, with all the all the attendant mm. prices, prices, and you know, look, there's Alan Bennett mowing the lawn. No, it's ridiculous. Know. So that was, yeah. So we, and so did the shows, enjoyed the world. And then both her parents and my parents were getting on and we needed to be back. So around 95, we moved back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided to come to Hollywood. Until then, I didn't think, you know, I kind of, I got, I got around the line a little by being on a hit show in England. Everybody was interested in the Americans who were in this show and being accepted were the Brits. Little did they know that's all we had to offer them. <laughs> oh, we, we, we welcomed you with open arms, Mike. You yeah. did. No, you did. America's always. When I got back to the States and I started doing movies, I have this birthmark. Yeah, yeah. You know? And they wanted me to get surgery to take it off. I'm like, nope. 
They want to fix. You don't want to fix. Oh the my image. god! It's always Hollywood. Is Hollywood? Is like it's Hollywood? Yeah. Um, they're like it's like a beautiful hostess at a party at a house. You don't know if you really belong, mm. and it's all very gracious. And then you know you put the olive pit in the wrong dish, and they're like, "What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Get out! What is wrong with you? <laughs> Good God! Don't you know that those are that was used by Sylvester Stallone?" <laughs> Damn! All right. Yeah, and yeah. You feel it's like a, it's it's politeness is so contingent. And even though you could, some people could say that about the UK. I didn't get that. I got okay. Um, so I'm in Edinburgh. I'm at the assembly bar room mm-hmm. and having a drink, and this gentleman, really in, but older than me, very plummy, very plummy, just talking to me. Couldn't be nicer. And as he's talking to me, I said, everybody moves away from where I'm at. And I'm like, is, is this like an old English pervert who likes fat boys? Is this what's, am I going to find myself greased up over like a, an Oxford <laughs> armchair? And, and, but no, he was very kindly left. And then Richard came and goes, do you know who that was? And he goes, no, he goes, that's a guy named Ned Sharon. And Ned Sharon, uh, he explained who he was. And I was like, oh my God. Thank, thank, thank God I didn't know. Because yeah. then I would try to impress him. Mm. I'd be going and I just talked to him wow. and then he had me on he had me on loose ends like five or six yeah times. yeah yeah once they get the measure of you and figure you're not they can deal with you a mm. guy like him couldn't have been you know right Peter Cook same thing but he was very nice to me and confront you know stopped me and complimented me and asked me about things I'm like why are you even spending five you know but funny's funny yeah and the guys, oh. guys who've made it. So, so you know, I have like, I know we all have our days where you go, why am I in this business? I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I'm a sad old bastard. <laughs> I mean, was there much of a culture you know, think, culture well, shock? What? Was there much of a culture shock when you moved from, from the US initially? Of course. Of course, because you assume that we're the same and you then come up in front of the points where you're not uh, in language and culture and history, yeah. in faith. My friend of mine, his aunt, I went to visit, and she goes, and she's very um, home counties. And what church you? I go, no, I'm Catholic. And she goes, oh, papist. The papist. And I went, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> this really, this really still that thing. They go, okay, I guess. Yeah. And then I see like, was an English one, a Scottish friend, and I'm like, What's with you guys? <laughs> I was doing a show. These two guys are lifelong buddies. And they like double dead together. They're really close. And we were doing the show to get ready for the opening night. And the Scottish guy's putting on his kilt and sporin. And the guy's Londoner is like, uh, he goes, hey, nice dress, mate. It's not a dress. It's a kilt. Goes, yeah, yeah. Nice tailing on the dress. And I was like, why do you guys say that? Man? <laughs> we're going to go out and celebrate being in a, we're in like a West End show. Having the time of our life. And you got a bag on this guy with the thing? Leave him alone. <laughs> it's, like, it's like being black in America. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're bringing it up. You're oh. making an issue of it. And then you're telling me to calm down. I remember <laughs> I saw The Economist when Scotland was doing an initiative to become independent. And they had the guy with the red wig and the tartan hat with the blue paint on his, blue salt hair on his face. And he's like, oh, don't leave us this way. And I'm like, how are you going to get people on your side? But that's like me wanting to talk about 
the problem of race in America and having a black man with a big watermelon and picking it in dreads going, <laughs> you know, it's like, you're, you're just some people you're just not going to reach with that image. Make the job harder, man. Yeah. I know you, you know, you're just going, Oh, I'm just joking. I go, mm, no, I read about the horror. I read about the herring of the North. <laughs> Think learning about yeah. the history and learning all the sides of it. Mm. And still going, okay. Oh, uh, it's, it's all banter. It's a, yeah, that's, that's all you'll be told, Mike. It's, it's all banter, you know. There was a cab driver one day. I got in. He was, and he was a stereotype short, bald, white dude yeah. with a St. David's flag, the David's flag on his shirt, big, you know. And he's like, Where are you going to, lad? You know, and I'm like, Oh, no, 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 no. I go, Wow, boy, my city's crowded. He goes, I'll say it is. Too many of them, if you know what I mean. And I'm like, Oh, I got one. Got me so I put a little extra Midwestern going, Yeah, man, there's a lot of black folks here, man. Oh, well, we got packies, mate. And he started going off on all that shit. And I'm just, it's like I got a catfish. I'm just kind of going, Yeah, La-dee-dee. and then he topped it off by going, Bro, I'm getting away from all this. I'm going, uh, I'm going to Thailand for a week, one of them tours. And I'm like, Oh, you sick. Uh, <laughs> well, you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, I went. Man, it was almost like you get a checklist for like a horrible Londoner. It's like, it's got tick, like, tick, tick. Oh, sex tour. Oh, Thai sex tours. Well done, sir. Five out of five. You know, oh. and Greg had the same thing. Greg gets in the kitchen about it, you know, especially if they're Semitic and stuff. He's just like, oh, gets God, right yeah. on it. Um, and uh, so it is, you know, but saying that, mm. and those, you know, we always remember the high points that are awful. And, but there's so many high points that aren't made. A buddy of mine took me what he called a zipper run, where we, we it's not safe, we're drinking and driving across all the bridges of London. Oh, my God. <laughs> and finally, ending up in Whitechapel at 4.30 in the morning, having bagels, eating bagels and drinking coffee. Wow. And and just sitting sitting outside a public urinal, like leaping up against it. Like, and you're just going, this is great. Oh, those are the days. I'm sorry, that's living to me. Oh yeah. And he explained he explained to me the Jewish populations, the Huguenots, mm. the you know, and, and then and then the Pakistan, you know. Yeah. So he showed, you know, my friend has got that sense of history, and that's why yeah, yeah. he shows you this place is, you know, akin to the village in New York, always turning over, always turning over, you know. Um, and with the remnants of it being there, and he kind of showed it, you know, so I, I I've had a Truly, have a I've had a privileged view uh, of the UK, mm. and 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 I hope it doesn't. You know, I hope I can keep doing it until somebody goes. That's right, you, you and your lot out. <laughs> you're barred. You're barred. <laughs> you're barred. <laughs> yeah, so I'm pretty lucky so far. Yeah, I mean, you're you're a very accomplished actor, Mike. I mean, you you were, you you were in episodes of Seinfeld. You were in Frasier. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Let us talk about that and my impeccable Cornish dialect. <laughs> Alan Rickman used to give me shit oh. every day oh. for fun because the British thing, if they don't like yeah. you, they won't give you shit. So he he liked me and he gave me shit. I come into the trailer and go, Dr. Michael, what part of England are you from today? And I'm like, fuck you, man. <laughs> Get a dark board, just go where oh, I'm from Leeds. Somebody give me some Leeds, you know. Pick um, an accent. 
Making that well, Paul Merton does that to me all the time. I'll come out and do it. They'll the guys and the chums will keep me off stage. They'll do a scene. They have to do it like in Wales, and they'll be doing these horrible Wales dialects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they go, "Oh, where's our grandmother? You know, the one with the beautiful, authentic Welsh dialect, who sings like an angel gargling and that kind of stuff." And so I'd come out. I would just do the broadest, like, <laughs> some weird bollocks, you know, because you just have to commit. It's the idea of like, oh yeah, they set you up to to blow it, go with it. blow it big time. <laughs> I did one. I did one doing a Cockney dialect and just had Paul on the floor because I wouldn't let it go. Because we started going, we saw something, we saw like, Oi, you toilet! <laughs> Calling somebody a toilet. Yes! Just, that became, yes. for the rest of the show that day, like, Oi, toilet! <laughs> oh, yeah, come here, yeah. All that kind of noise. So basically, I'm doing a modified Stephen Frost. I'm doing Stephen Frost on ketamine. Oh, you know? St- so lovely you Stephen. Lovely Stephen. Go, Go big or go frosty. Oh, definitely. You know? yeah. yeah. No, Ian Ian Coppinger was telling me some stories about Stephen when he's when he's had a few. Yeah, I can't play with them. I'm I'm gonna I'm going to do a show with them, but I would never tour. I couldn't tour with them because I, I couldn't keep up. And, and this in the old days, and that's not you know, um, those guys still delivered. I mean, did he, did Coppinger tell about him falling asleep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you couldn't make it up. <laughs> Believe me, there's nobody more. I I did one when I was being I was you know on the whose lines I was being moved out of it to make make room for other people. Yeah, and they yeah. weren't they weren't very nice about it. You know, and they gave me one show and basically told me to piss off. Wow. So I was hanging around afterwards and nobody was really talking to me. Not the cast; they were was cool, but yeah, yeah. Production was a little, you know, mm, can, you know. Mm. Wow. And Frosty came around the corner, blazing, and just big shot. And he wrapped me in his arms, and I was like, I almost started crying. I was yeah. like, Oh, thank God you're here. Yeah, He's really sweet to me. And you know, a cat's got that's why Andy and those cats they yeah. have a lot of room. You got to get the groove. I remember seeing Andy and, and Frosty doing a scene at the store once, and it was Cod Cockney. They were both just like, Oh, no, Mike, that's what I have to wear. And that was it, that's all they did. For like four minutes and the audience was losing its shit and i remember sitting back looking at it going this could be 1890 this could be the 1800s mm. watching it because they were doing they were like doing a big some bit of max wall yeah like the arm out and yeah the, yeah you know, the are sticking out and spinning <laughs> on their feet and, and i was watching it because like like you know smarty frosty Mertney, <laughs> uh anyway yeah paul definitely paul uh, Paul and Jim Sweeney taught Greg, Greg and I the first year who's lined this crash course mm. in British comedy. So yeah, yeah. Max Wall, uh, uh, I have you know the distinct advantage of I was a fan of Eber Cutler, mm-hmm. the Scottish. Comedian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, there was a, a head shop, a hippie store, and they had his albums in it. And dude, I used to buy drug paraphernalia and obscure British, you know. Canterbury Sound Records, right, Fox right, Machine, right, right, yeah. That from Ed Asner, Lou Grant, yeah, from yeah. his brother. His brother ran a head shop because he's from Kansas City, where I'm from, from my suburban area. Yeah. So he looked like he looked like Lou Grant and David Crosby, like the big walrus. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where you get all stuff. So when I met Ed Asner, I talked to him, and I go, I don't think he likes his brother much. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He like started backing away. I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't know there was a there was a family problem. Um, <laughs> 
but there was this period where I got people were into really esoteric music in the middle. Mm. Hatfield in the North. Yeah, I yeah. Lee Simpson loses his mind when I met. I did that in a call on a, a show, and he's like, "How do you know them?" And like, who was it? Have you ever been to Halifax? I remember the song. And the planet gone. I go. It's just a bunch of stoners in the Midwest listening to esoteric, yeah, purposely weird music. We were the kid. I grew up the kids. We wanted to listen to to Frank Zappa. You know, as well as I want. It's like opening a box and finding something really strange that you're all peering into <laughs> and letting it affect you. you know? <laughs> um, so that part of because being Catholic again is so sweet. You know. It's yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul Merton, he's a, he's a bit of a, a comedy historian, isn't he? In in some ways, oh, yeah. he, he knows his, he knows the his carry comedy. on film. Yeah, the structure <laughs> of the carry on films. Uh, uh, Dan Leno, pantomime, all that we all, he would, they would just talk to us. We'd go have beers and, mm. or go, and go and watch some TV. I mean, in a sense that I think I had a, a link to it when I was a little kid. They had on public TV the Marty Feldman comedy machine, and I would watch that. And the opening credits were designed by Terry Gilliam as well. So that that stop animation made out of cutouts. I remember seeing that, and I remember the first sketch I saw of Marty Feldman was it was like a nature show ornithological survey of royalty, and so royalty was treated like some weird bird. So they had a squared garden, and there was an actress dressed as like a queen sitting in a chair. And from out the bushes, Marty came with a big crown down on his head and a huge robe walking like a chicken and just doing this mating dance around her, this ridiculous <laughs> mating chicken dance. And I was just losing my mind as a kid. It was like yeah. a Warner Brothers cartoon. It took highbrow, it took highbrow and low, boom, you know? Yeah, yeah, effect. yeah. And so I think because of Warner Brothers cartoons, I was already in Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was already into the offbeat stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So here's this British comedy show with this wall-eyed dude doing hilarious shit. Uh, I don't mean to be disparaging me, wall-eyed. That, that's sorry, it's a Midwestern in me. And <laughs> I think Mr. Feldman would understand. I say that with love. I'm and, sure he um, would. I'm sure he would. Greg had a great, great moment, but he became friends with Marty Feldman's wife. Oh wow! And Jennifer, really close, and they went over her house. And he's goofing around in the house one day. And there's a hat rack, and he takes there's a straw hat, pork pie. And he puts it on. And he's looking at it. And she goes, "That's Buster Keaton's. He gave that to Marty." And Greg went. And she goes, oh. <laughs> "Oh my god!" Yeah, you know, keep it on. I mean, we adored those. I think when there was still the member on, on the South Bank, they had this the London Museum of Cinema. Oh, was it London? It was the big cinema museum that was gone now. Right oh, is that where the, the where the NFT is now? Would that be? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where the NFT is. Well, they had this great exhibit of silent film, and we walked through it one day when we were doing Who's Line. We had the day to go, and we got to the end of it, and they had sort of on an invisible frame, Chaplin's outfit. <sighs> and I'm sorry. I mean, I ranked that. I got to see the chair that Molière died in at the Comédie Française. I asked to go. And a little, I don't speak much in any, but I can kind of understand it. Yeah. Because I took Latin when I was mm -hmm. a kid. And I said, can I see that? And they were like, and it made me cry. You know, yeah, yeah. These two held, these two things held artists that changed the world. Mm. world really yeah, did. Yeah. yeah. Through satire and comedy. And so all that was had been made available to me. Yeah, Greg and I got really, we're both like, we have to get out of here. We have to go to a bathroom and cry. 
and they've gone through. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Without without Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, you, you know what would? Fry? Oh, you would. But I mean, without without Chaplin and Keaton, I mean, what what would it be? What would co- comedy be now? You know, it wouldn't. You would have a film at Comedy Hub. And without, um, and I dare say, uh, four people: Harold Lloyd and 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 Roscoe Arbuckle. Yeah, Arbuckle is one of the hired Keaton. They became mates, and Arbuckle's they'd sit up at night with the camera, taking it apart. He'd run film and show Keaton, you know, how to overcrank and undercrank. Mm. Sitting there drinking beer. They're both from where I'm from, Kansas. They're both Kansas boys sitting in there playing baseball in the evening sun, going and having a couple of beers, learning about stuff and going back. I go, what a better, what a better world to learn an art in. Um, I, and I, and I see you're right, Paul. Paul introduced me to Neil Brand, who's, you know, who's became my friend, who's a brilliant silent film composer. Mm. And so all this knowledge from all these guys was worn very lightly. I never, ever felt it was a clubhouse. Yeah, that yeah. I had to have a password to get into. Yeah. None of that guy behavior. Without exception, Paul and Neil and welcome Greg and I and the players. Very so I think speaking for myself, I always called them very dear to me. Yeah. Well, as I said, you, you've done so much in your career, Mike. I mean, like N- NCIS. I love seeing you pop up in stuff. <laughs> I just love seeing you just pop up randomly in episodes of shows that I love. You know, well, as, I, as I was saying earlier, Seinfeld and, uh, you know, Frasier and things. Uh, Karen and I are watching Frasier from the beginning to the end. Oh, love it. We're watching just to watch their development. Oh, oh. They, that was a good show. That was good to be in. David Hyde Pierce was really sweet. He he walked up and he goes, oh, look, it's the... Was it the terribly overqualified, overqualified Michael McShane? The bit I had to do wasn't a big bit, and he was really helpful and really uh, nice. And yeah, that is hands down because they had I don't know what twelve years. Yeah, and so big plush chairs, uh, snack bar. <laughs> John Lithgow says, uh, you know, theater is a skinny art. You don't want to eat before the show. You know, maybe have a light meal after and booze it up. Yeah. You don't eat during the day, you don't rehearse, so you eat light, you know, and you're active for a chronological length yeah. of time. The show is, you can lose weight. Movies are fat-making machines. Because <laughs> you do something, and there's the snack table, and you're like, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> They even did that in broad, in the Bullet Summer Broadway with, with uh, Tim Broadbent's character. <laughs> just because there's a service table on the side. And he, he can't fit this costume. And you go, it can happen. You can go, wait, this is tighter. That's because you've been fucking eating donuts and like breakfast burritos. <laughs> but nothing's better in the morning than a hot breakfast burrito. When I did Robin Hood, they had to do the wedding scene of Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio, who's so beautiful. But it was like a Jersey girl. She's like totally from the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. And she wasn't awake. She had her coffee. And they had that wheat sheath with the berries <laughs> with the wreath on her head. And the guy goes, what would you like? What would you like for breakfast, Mary? She goes, just pour some fucking hot milk on my head, and I'm useless. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's like with the coffee going, Argh. you know, trying to get down to the set. That was Morgan and Alan, and she, my wife's in the film in Robin Hood because of Alan Rickman. Oh, she's ma- she's made Marion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you heard the story? No, I haven't. I haven't. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So my wife's an academic, she's not mm-hmm. and. They we went to France to shoot the last scenes, and uh, they brought the stand in and they wrapped Elizabeth. So it was a, a mid far shot, mm-hmm. 
there's a far shot. So he's wanting to stand in for that of her being sort of manhandled by the sheriff of Nottingham. Very Robin, that thing, you know, custom him going, oh, you know, yeah, so yeah. she's gone. And they got the stand in and it did not look anything in height, shape, or anything. It was a stunt woman. And Alan goes, well, Carolyn is the same size as Madison. Good find a costume. And they said, okay. So they put her in a costume. And I have footage of her and Alan because they both have those black wigs. And Karen said, hey, look, we're a, we're a tribute group. We're Cher and Cher alike. <laughs> so they started doing gypsies, tramps, and thieves, and just <gasps> goofing around. So he kept it really light. And Karen's in the movie. And she gets to be pulled around. And first take, literally, like, like a loose ball. <laughs> And I was like, it goes, don't fight me so hard. You don't, don't fight me so hard. You know? She was like, really? <laughs> and uh, she pulled her back out doing it. Um, oh, my God. It was really sweet. But, you know, yeah. She was like, because, you know, she had a great time. She spent spent like in the hotel room in bed watching French Jeopardy getting drunk. <laughs> she was like, this is great. But Al was really great like that. He was, you know, all good mm. morning. Taught me how to do do close-ups. He had a scene where he had to do the same dialogue with four different camera le- lenses, and he because he knew I was a theater actor primarily. And he knocked on my my trailer door and went, "You want to come? In? I want to show you something. It probably, probably is helpful." And I went, "Okay, yeah." So I went down with him and he showed me the shot and how to do it, and gesturing on these words like mm-hmm. this. When you get the extreme close-up, you just you cross your arms under your armpits with your hands in your armpit on each beat that you stretch your hands out push your arms and your chest together right so the muscles up here in the camera move in tandem with the shot right okay then it's the editor so easy and that way you get to be in the movie more <laughs> <laughs> you know, he pitched it on both levels like good work ethics yeah and you may be in the movie more and, yeah. and, and, he, and we did a scene he did a scene that he said we didn't like how it's written we want to improvise it because Mike's an improviser. He's like, oh, wow. Do you want to improv with him? And he goes, yeah. And he just head up and did it. We did two or three passes around the scene where I apologized to him for being, you know, religiously intolerant. And we did it. <laughs> and it was great. He was up oh. for it. Treated Karen like a like a princess. So I have really good, I've been very lucky. So mm. it's work for somebody. What a guy to learn from. Somebody. What a guy to learn from, though, you know? Yeah, we learned, I mean, I've learned from real good, my first role in a movie, which got cut, the scene got cut, was uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. So it's Oh, I love that Coppola. film. And so Coppola had a scene mm. where it's a traveling shot of the of doing one or two sentences about what our lives were like to build up that part of the story in the beginning at the at the prom. And they cut it. And um, and I got a call, this was before I had a cell phone, I got a call at the place I was living. And my roommate's like, hey, it's Francis Ford Coppola for you, Mr. McShane. I'm like, fuck you. Literally, you know. I figure he goes, hello, Mike, it's Francis. And I'm like, it is him. <laughs> really sorry. We, you're going to see that we cut you out of the film. It's, you cut that scene. And I just want you to know it's not you. You did a great job. Wow. A movie called Tucker. I'm going to give you a couple of lines. Is that, is that okay? Mm, yeah. yeah. Like, no, definitely. Like, no, 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 definitely. Oh, my God. Yeah. So so if you're, you're an actor in the Bay Area... He had, his, he had his offices there. Like, he worked on Godfather 3. He'd bring five or six local actors in to read the script aloud while he did slides from them, the location from Dean Tavalouris, the production designer, to match uh, exteriors mm. with the scenes and tone and shape. And he did that. And then at the end of it, 
he'd we'd cook a meal. He had this this big room in the basement of his offices where they had a kitchen. He'd make a meal, some pasta, some sausage, eat, drink some of his wine. He'd give you a hundred bucks. You're like 25 years old. Be out in the street at 3 a.m. going, what just happened? So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, sometimes over with the director who's a bit, you work with somebody who's really aggressive. Yeah. Mm. You go like, look, I'm, I'm spoiled. It, I wouldn't say that to him. Like, I'm spoiled. Go ahead and do what you need to do. But Copeland didn't have to be like that. You don't have to be like that. Yeah. And I got, you know, I, I got to the point where I got a little, and I have to remind myself to pull that shit back. What your expectations are and your ego tells you what you've been, been given, you've come to expect. And when mm. you do that, I think that's where, you know, you get in trouble. There's a comedian who he does now outreach for troubled youth named Michael Pritchard. He's a really close friend of Robin's. And Michael's a big guy like me. We both auditioned for Robin Hood. And uh, he said, you're going to get it. He was really nice. And he was talking about Hollywood stuff because he was on Taxi. He had a, a nice run as a character guy. And he said, he goes, it's a limo thing. Go, what do you mean? He goes, okay, first time the studio gives you a limo. Wow. Oh, my God. Wow, it's a limo. This is great. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. And the next time you're like, oh, great. Look, hey, like, the, limo, the limo's here. And then the third step into hell is like, oh, look, my limo's here. Now the limo's yours. Yeah. It's you. You are the limo. The mm. limo is you. And then you're like, the next step is, hey, where's my fucking limo? <laughs> and then you realize, you know, you've gotten the full depth. Yeah. And, you know, you're drinking toilet water out of Satan's bathroom. <laughs> and just bargaining. <laughs> Delicious. And, and then somebody goes, uh, excuse me. Yes. You know why you get the limo? So we make sure you're on the set on time. I don't give a fuck about you. The driver doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah. Yeah. It's insurance. If you it says eight o'clock, you get here at eight o'clock. It's functional. It's purely functional. Everything around it is, you know, it's a convenience that mm. if you get offered it, you go, thank you very much. And uh I mean one of the reasons, you know, when you think about the strike right now, yeah, like after strike, you know, and I'm I do picket lines, you all the guarantees that I unconsciously enjoyed the the pension, which I get now because mm-hmm. I'm retired. Uh, the healthcare I got that my wife gets all came from those guys, Cagney, Betty Davis, Humphrey Bogart, Frank and Ralph Morgan, yeah, Eddie Cantor. All those were actors who made those guarantees. And you could probably point to the British actors who made British actors. All those were rights that were fought for. And now you have to do it again because the studios are the studios. You know, the old Warner Brothers cartoon, it's with the, um, the sheepdog and 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 Wiley Coyote. Yes, they always start. It's a bucolic. <laughs> it's the Chuck Jones one. It's like la 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 la, and they both come over the hill. They got lunch pails. They got like <laughs> blue collar lunch boxes. Hey Bob. Hey Ralph. How's it going? Yeah, good. Good to see you again. Yeah. And they punch in. <laughs> yeah. they punch in. They wait. They're <laughs> still the saying the whistle goes off, and they go beating the shit out of each other. You know, tooth and claw is basically a nine to five job. And the, there's one part that's about the. But then fucking kill the wolf. He's got you know, hanging over the cliff. The guy about to punch him, but and he puts him down. They both go. They open up the lunches, like their legs hanging over law, like the picture of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Building, just going having a chat, you know. And to me, that you know is that show business. Sums it up. Everything is just yeah, but it's a gig. It's a gig, and you've got your coworkers. You know, one of my favorite films as a kid. I think maybe made me want to be an actor was. Man of a Thousand Faces with mm-hmm. Lon Chaney 
and Pat Lon Chaney oh, wow. with yeah. Jimmy Cagney, who my dad was very fond of. And he goes on the lot, Paramount lot, I realized later. He's got a, a flat cap, uh, a workman's coat, that blue dungaree coat, like any laborer in the late 19th, 20th century yeah. in the UK, dungarees. And he's got, a, it looks like a big lunchbox. He walks up and there's a list. And of course, it's, now it's horribly racist. I go, two Pakistan, two Indian thuggies, you know, two thuggies. You know, he considers that, goes over and sits, he sits and the shot widens. And there's all these actors from theory, drama, cowboy, all very different costumes. And they're all sitting around smoking, being what is the stereotype of actors, bitching and smoking. <laughs> and he opens it, he opens up the lunchbox and it's his makeup kit. And he takes out a hank, he takes out a bib, like he's going to eat, tucks it in, and pulls out a pot of cream and starts, you know. And as he's doing it, they pull in, as they pull in, actors are finishing their, this great holiday thing. They're like, what's he doing? Yeah. So curious, this man with his makeup kit. They're all like focusing on Lon Chaney, you know. They don't know he's Lon Chaney yet. They do this. Then it cuts to it, it dissolves. And then there's the guy, the casting guy. Okay, we got the Indians. We got the guys, the, the swells from Broadway. Hey, you got any thuggies? Any thuggies? <laughs> with a turban, a turban and an eye patch. Like, ah, Effendi. La, 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 la. And the guy's like, holy cow, where are you from? He flips the eye patch. Goes, it's me. Long. <laughs> uh, I was like nine years old when I saw that. I oh, like, wow. So, yeah, it was a combination of it's an artist and it's a blue collar job. It's a blue collar job. You show you a picture. You see this? That's my uncle Frank. Oh, I can't. Can you see that? Uh, oh, oh, yes. I, yeah, I, I can kind of see it. Yeah. Oh, there we That's go. my uncle Frank and my Aunt Lou. They're yep. from Illinois. Oh, wow. They're not really my uncle. They He was wounded in the war. And my mother was a nurse to care of him during the war. He was the first artist I ever met. He was a writer, mm -hmm. and he wrote for the local newspaper. And one of the poems he wrote was read at President Eisenhower's inauguration. Wow! And he was a very soft-spoken, small man. His wife was a, you know, buxom, hearty Midwestern gal, just, <gasps> uh, you know, all sass and, and low on the bullshit. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. Sweet, grand matronly quality to her. Really, really lovely lady. They had a farmhouse outside the town mm -hmm. in Illinois. And we'd go and spend a couple of days there. And I would sit on the porch with a tire swing, making peach ice cream, cranking it. And he'd be writing poems. And I'm like, that's what he does for a living. He writes yeah. rhymes. And he's got this house and the ice cream and the sun. And he was the first guy I went, okay. Mm. I guess being an artist is uh, kind of cool. You know, it wasn't smock and that kind of, it wasn't, it was sort of relaxed, very Midwestern. This is what he does, and this is the life he has. So that between the practical and the artistic, there were these examples mm. in my life as a kid. I think I try to strive for that. I'm probably, probably too naturally hyperbolic and grandiose to really qualify, but they're there. They're part of who I am. Yeah, but I mean, you, you've done so many things, Mike, you know, and you obviously like to keep your work varied. Do you have a, do you have a favorite aspect of what you do? I know you do a lot of voiceover work. And obviously, it's like the improv stuff. Do you have a do you have a favorite aspect of what you do? Each of the disciplines to do it properly. Mm. Finding the technique is always my greatest joy. Yeah. I'm not scared of any medium, or I don't downplay it. You know, I used to be very snobby when I was younger. I think, but my favorite, I'm generally a live performer. Yeah, I like playing live. You know, you know. Well, you know, the sense of accomplishment of getting through something and doing it right, and and getting the audience with you and seeing them is a challenge because it's it's also it's challenging and scary. It's also renewable. Mm. You can lose the audience in a, in a live format and get them back. I saw Steve Frost at the Hackney Empire. 
lose an audience and get them back. Yeah. He really had to kill a couple of them, but he got them back. He was amazing. And to pull the, his influence together yeah. and grab people so you can win an audience in the evening. If it's a proper skill, play. though, isn't it, Mike? It's a, it's a proper skill what you do. Do you know what I mean? It's like. I think so. I think so. It's crazy. Yeah, you got to be. You got to be heard. You got to repeat. It's better, you know. It's better than this heightened language sometimes. Um, that that it's easier to remember. It, 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 you, it's it has its musical elements of of in you know, in its rhetorical elements have mm. patterns. Yeah, it's built, especially with Shakespeare. Once you get a good director, which I was lucky to have good directors in Shakespeare from the beginning, to get you to understand what and why you're doing what you're doing. Dakin, who who I learned with. Like I said, I went to study at the Vatican. Takes a very, I take a very strong look at the transition from the Catholic to the Protestant, the schism, the language sets. Instead of saying, "Yeah, use God's word," when it's in a phrase, what that would tell the other person who, yeah, which how you how you um code switched in yeah 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 that world to survive like a black person code switches in white America because if you said something the wrong way to protestant authority mm. they can be knocking on your door that night yeah and you can find yourself with a hot poker up your ass you know for your life and uh all, all that a friend of mine armin shimmerman who's an actor who's in star trek uh not is it deep space nine i think the one was he was he a, he's a, he was a was he her a ferengi he, he, he was the ferengi yes yeah he's also a shakespeare skull oh really he's written these three these three fictional books about dr john d Wow, being a spy for Elizabeth, that are fantastic books. They really are. Hmm, um, check those out. A conspiracy of angels. What is that? a conspiracy? I got a couple here. Got my bookshelf over here all the time. <laughs> I, I love it because he's he's and so I belong to a theater company called Antius, and Armin's a company member. Uh, a number of people, uh, Tony Award winning people. They're all theater who live in LA, mm. and so we do we do uh, classical theater and extended new pieces but how it always starts is the theater has always had a library a highly stocked library mm -hmm. and we'll sit down and do a shakespeare play that afternoon we'll read it and we'll read it line by line going around the circle we don't really? assign roles we just read it finish the scene dakin will talk about it Armin will discuss it we'll argue about things well and i think i am a theater person i tend to bond more over plays, ideas and plays why a play works or doesn't work because sometimes movies don't work because of marketing and timing. Yeah. 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 And sometimes a play is easier to figure out why that production may not be happening, may not grab the audience mm. and it teach you know, the audience and get them to lean into the show. Yeah. In improvisation, I work with a guy named Dave Riz, who's from Chicago. Mm -hmm. He's got a book out called The, Sub the Subversive's Guide to Improv, taking further from Keith Johnston going, be as ordinary. Don't try to push, don't try to add. Listen, talk slow, ask questions. You can say no to the character in an improv. You're saying no, but you know, you're qualifying it. They pick up that, you know, so building longer scenes. So when the opening that that thing that makes people stay with improv, which is that that moment, then you can go with them. And then the audience is with you. Yeah. Like Penn and Teller say the greatest magic is the mag another magician, and they're not being a dick. And they go, hmm. Oh, I see what they're doing. Oh, yes, it's that that's it. And yeah, what the what just yeah, yeah. And then it's like and and so to to achieve to achieve that a relaxed manner mm. without worrying about the result to learn to fail and uh, because you know you're going to to fail in a group 
to make your offers in improv. Now I do a lot more nonverbal offers and in, in improv now. Hmm. That, I'm, I'm gonna stay with that and stand by it. How I hand you an you know, how I hand you a glass. Is it is it hot? Is it cold? Is it high status? You know, everything yeah, you do yeah, doesn't yeah. have to say it. It tells the other person what you think of them and the moment. And mm. it's in that moment. And I think that this is part of the legacy of Keith Johnstone and other improvisers. And I'm so I I think stage and improv. Because people go, Well, how do you get a, you know, you you have this, you know, this career, da, 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 da. I go, because I'm an anomaly. I'm telling you, if you want to learn improv, be live. Although what you like about me, you saw on TV. The best thing about that art form, because it is. I mean, look at your culture. I'm proud to know Britain. You guys gave an improv group. I know, I know, it's crazy. Yeah. Because it's theatrically sound. Because it's theatrically sound. Yeah. It's theater. Mm. And you know what it's supposed to do. And they, you know, I love those guys. I love yeah. Ruth and Pippa and all of them. Mm. Adam, I'm like sat in with them and got to play with them. And I'm so, that's the coolest thing in the world. Your culture gets what theater is and it's less fussy. That's why your culture has these greats. You have, I was doing a play with Kevin McNally. Mm-hmm. He had a set, he was doing another show at the National. And he said, hey, can you help me run lines for me and my scene partner over the scene for the show I'm doing? Oh, yeah. So we're playing for Lear Cameron Yeah. I went up to the cafe, got a sandwich and a cup of tea. And he goes, oh, here's my scene partner. And Ian McKellen shows up. Oh, my God. And he says, and he opens up a bag lunch and gets himself a tea and a cup of soup. And he's sitting there and they run the scene and the lines. And he says, oh, thank you very much. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, my God. It's un- <laughs> I say, you know, I say, it's unfussy. Because you guys have been in show business since like three Britons were sitting mm. around a rock going, you know, Sedwick, strike up that liar and tell us about that band. Yeah. <laughs> have some more me. You know, <laughs> like here, you're cool. It's, you know, for all yeah. the grandeur we associate with British theater, its core is storytelling. Pure oh, it really is. It really good is. Tale. So I, I, I think if I take anything from your, other than your sheet, other than your, which I do love. I actually, I cheese cheese picks from him, <laughs> so I can go and eat cheese. <laughs> My wife is fundamentally doesn't because I do like the stinky cheese. Oh, cheese, cheese really like divides people, cheese. doesn't it? Divides people. It does. I love it. That and a couple of oat cakes. Oh yeah, and yeah. A cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. Look at it. <laughs> Yeah, my dad loves the old stinky cheeses. I, I don't see the appeal you, myself, you know. No. There's one called Stinking Bishop, which is very nice. Yeah. Of course, that's the British thing, too. You know, all of the Stinking Bishop and the Shropshire Knob. They, you know? Oh, yeah. We love, love our cheese names. <laughs> I remember Andy, Andy used to participate in a sport, any sport or participate in a sport where it basically is it's in Gloucestershire where they roll a lot. Oh, the cheese rolling. Yes. Roll. People get really injured from that. Dude, that's a big yeah. We used to think he's either going to be taken out by a bull yeah. or a huge wheel of cheese. Yeah. He left on his own terms. Oh, him and the old but, bull, bull running, you know, though. My God, Jesus Christ. You know. <laughs> he was committed. He yeah, really was. I've never met a guy like him. No, no, total, total one-off. Like total one-off. And you go, you know, the old Yiddish thing of like, may his memory be a blessing. Mm. Thinking about him makes me happy 
Yeah. I'm sorry he's gone. Yeah. But thinking about him makes me go, oh, you know, here's where you could be a bit more like him and the world would be better. Yeah. You know. But I mean, when he, when he passed, the, the absolute the absolute outpouring of love and stuff for him when he passed was, he was incredible. We, we thought, yeah. No one you believed know, it. You know? Josie said, I didn't think he'd make old bones, but I didn't think he'd leave so quick. Yeah. You know, because he's eternal. I mean, that guy, mm. Lord Almighty. Yeah. No, he was a force of nature, real force of nature. Oh, baby. <laughs> oh, you're stewing. Indeed. about music now um so have there been any sort of big music love affairs in your life be it a band or a or an artist um i i loved english english uh rock and roll when i was a kid mm -hmm. i i, uh, I like the the canterbury sound soft machine yeah yeah uh, that um pink floyd i really loved i still am uh i was a huge fan of jethro tull growing up as a kid so a lot of that music, some of the folk derivative music, Steely Span, Pentangle, when I was growing up, those were all that hippy dippy, floaty, you know, that sort of stuff really got to me. But I also, I'm a big fan of jangly pop. I love music. Uh, I love to root, to move to music. I love it. I love showbiz music. When I was a kid, I got to see how to succeed in business without really trying at a theater um, with with Robert Morris, who created the role. Oh wow. So when he did that, you know, the, the you've got the cool, clear eyes of a seeker of wisdom and truth. And then would be going like, doing that like muffin dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing around, you know, what is this? What is this? You know? And so then I got to, I've been in a couple of musicals. Um, I got to be in a Broadway musical, The Concert Poe, which is wonderful. But my favorite musical I've ever been in would be two, both Sondheim. Mm -hmm. uh, first big musical role I ever had was Suitless. And a funny thing, out in the way of the forum, mm -hmm. and I had a really good director, and I was young then, and I could flip on stage, do a lot of really tumbles and stuff really well. And it was great. It was so liberating. Yeah, yeah. To sing that score, and the lyrics, the rhyming, and all of it was just, you know, it was thrilling. Uh, I had a great time doing it, but something was lost. My first attempt at that, it was really great. And then I did, at the Menier, I did Assassins, uh, the Stephen Sondheim musical, uh, with an amazing cast of people. And um, Jamie Lloyd directed it. And Sondheim came to see it three times to see us do it. He loved it. Wow. It was so involving. You get so wrapped up in the music, choral singing, and the songs. It just, it was all on stage. We took all the air out of it, moved like a freight train. Mm, mm. Uh, but Jamie, that was part of his design and his direction in it. And um, God, I just loved doing it every night. Yeah. That he came to see it. And I got to see him. Mm. You know, and Wyman, who did the lyrics. To me, that sounds corny, but I don't care. I got, I, to me, I go, I'm an actor and I got to meet Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, Sondheim is a, he's a, he's a god among men, isn't he, for the, for the Broadway community? And he was so kind. And again, then learning about him later, learning it just as a performer, that he was a collaborator. His it was important to him for that art within the art. Mm, mm. And and 
just to know, you know, these guys are, yes, they're geniuses, but they're yeah. collaborative geniuses who wholly admit it. And they're the mini A, David Babani gave me, you know, an e ticket ride mm -hmm. through British theater by putting me in, in a little shop of horrors mm -hmm. with oh, Sheridan God. Smith, which was yeah. great. And, and being a friend and, and putting me up and taking care of me and me getting to see how showbiz works again. We, when it was still, you know, they did Paradise Found, which was this play that had, it was being directed by Hal Prince mm -hmm. with Mandy Patinkin, Euler Hemphley, oh my God. John McMartin, all these names. And it wasn't very good. Mm. It didn't come off, even with all those people. But before that, I was staying above the theater. They had a flat, right. they didn't have it anymore. But I was crashing up there while I was doing a play about um, uh, early Hollywood. They're doing a musical. Anyway, I go down to have a meal at the mini at the cafe. And I get a meal meeting. And how it's a tech. And how Prince comes into the restaurant. And he's just, he's looking around. And you know, you know what he looks like, the bald head and everything. Yeah. He looks and just, there's a wall. And he looks at the wall and just goes, boom, boom. He's beating his head against the wall. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a mid mid forkful going. What? <laughs> what is going and on? He turns around. He sees me. And he sees me. He goes, "Tech kid, it's tech. It's not going good." And then he walks. And I go, "God Almighty!" Even Hal Prince. Remember, even Hal Prince has a shit day. Yeah, 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 and his yeah. Commitment didn't fly. It didn't take off. And it was like it was the book. Maybe was that the book and the music were fight, not fighting, mm. running after each mm. other, but not. Mm. But it wasn't a merry chase, and so you you couldn't to it regardless of how the performances were yeah and so you always go it's no there's never been in my mind this is going to be a hit and it was it's always a gamble yeah oh no you it's can't never, tell you know it's the most highly educated horse race in the world that's one thing I love <laughs> because everybody's coming you know i know this it's going to work it's going to work yeah Ooh, maybe not yeah. this time so people think it's you know you sail in and it's got these things that are no, that's part of the showbiz too. It's all mm. going to be fantastic. Shut the door to the rehearsal room. What the fuck? Yes. <laughs> but like, oh. even performing at the Menier, do you know what I mean? Like, what a, an amazing place. It got so, and when you go in there, you look at this little room mm. with these big pillars in it. And the only advantage to the pillars is that they're uniformly divided. There's four of them. So scenically, you know, you can make things out of them or you can mask them. And Every show in our scene, designers just they had this magic moment where they yeah. make it work. Did you see um Fiddler with Andy Nyman? Oh my god. Isn't he incredible? Oh god, he's great. He's <sighs> another another bright star. But oh. in the end, when they're all leaving, you know, when they're all leaving, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, they had a cast of 10 people go out the side exit, go through the bar, run around the back door, and run down the back. And they had to pass the back. <laughs> Because they come off right before they come on to being handed, you know, a fake goat or a bundle of clothing. You know, to get the sort of like, <laughs> that thing going. Yeah, and yeah. So, you know, here's your fake court. Yeah. Now, now you're defeated. Walk. Yeah. <laughs> they got the the set in a forced perspective going off in a corner. So they're pushing the set visually, mm. and everything was like, this is great. They yeah. got this look. You got a big stage look in this tiny fucking place. You know, and I just that's why I love it. That place makes you want to be creative. Oh, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible. Oh, believe me. Go under. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. That's not what you want to hear. Some of these, these cool ago. places are absolutely shitholes behind the stage, you know.
but you, that, you know, you, you <laughs> succumb to the idea that, you know, that's the charm. That, yeah, that's so we think it's all glitz and glamour, you know. Yeah, I'm sitting, oh, look, I'm sitting down at, I'm up to my ankles in toilet water <laughs> with this Academy Award-winning actor. Hello. <laughs> that's, you know, that is part of it. You, you charm, you charm, you, mm. you make charm out of the smooth and the rough, but you actually do enjoy it. Contract a disease or you fall down some broken stairs. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> you sound like you're talking from experience, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I broke my ribs. I, I, I fell down 13 flights of toxics and Ellie Burr's play, Pocket Dream. Oh my God. And uh, and you know what? Lee Simpson, you know Lee? Yeah, I, yeah. I blame him. <laughs> I blame Lee Simpson. You're here, Britain, you're here to know it. Lee Simpson, genius theater man, all around nice guy and lead supporter, I think, lead United supporter. He came into the dressing room and he said, he said, Macbeth. And I went, why'd you do that? And he's like, oh, you Americans, you, you buy all this stupid theater. Then he goes, because Lee's in the comic class. He's like, no, 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 no. And he starts walking around my dressing room saying Macbeth. No, and no. Like, and putting his hands on his hips like, ha And then what's up? I'm like, you jerk. He goes, I was turn around three times for He's like, no, I won't. He was just adamant about it. He wasn't, he was just being, you know, funny. And I was like, yeah, all right, yeah. all right. I do the show, the second act, I'm at the top of these stairs and I have to grapevine down, singing a song. And it's lined by these kids who are playing fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm, it's a comic. I'm dressed like a, <laughs> there's no business singing. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. And I hit the second step. I trip over my feet and go down all 13 steps. My agents in the audience break two ribs. No, Crack them, crack them, crack them really bad. And for the first 15 minutes, I was fine. I finished the song. Yeah. I got done, got to the end of the scene. Also, they couldn't breathe. They couldn't yeah. Breathe. Like, oh, actually, I'm in quite a lot of pain. Kind <laughs> of draw a breath. And oh, now God. they got, they got, they got, they got a gurney and they're taking me out. And oh, Lee's so like over, Lee's standing over going, mate, mate, I'm so sorry, mate. I'm sorry, mate. And he's like being a project and I can't speak, but I'm in air. I'm going, <laughs> 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 trying to say fuck you as they're taking me out the elevator so oh my god there he goes that's a lesson learned with, there <laughs> if you if you work with lee simpson just be careful that's he looks he looks sweet he looks innocent cheese. doesn't he He looks so he sweet and innocent yes yeah and but underneath it's a evil <laughs> oh. oh my goodness oh. So, so what are you working on at the moment mike have you got any like, irons in the fire at the moment uh, I'm doing um, a radio version of The Great Gatsby, directed mm. by a British woman, Rosalind Ayres, with me and Rufus Sewell. You're in it, oh, as well God. as other people. I know, I know. I, my, my, no, I oh, we all love, quite... we all love a bit of Rufus. Yeah, there's another another gal in the Rufus fan club, honey. <laughs> yeah, so um, he's a beautiful so man. Then, what can I say? He is. He is. He's getting older, so he's getting into where I kind of feel like eat like a. Ian McShane should really watch his yeah. back now. Yes. He's getting too leathery. He's kind of looking like a pterodactyl. <laughs> and Rufus will take him out. I you think see so. the diplomat? You see yeah. Oh the my diplomat? god. Yeah, the series The Diplomat. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I love it. Love yeah. It. It's like West Wing Plus. You know, it's mm. getting more. But yeah, so I'm doing that. And then I've uh, I've written a one-person piece about the time I was put into a mental hospital. And I'm working on that now. I'll be doing one performance of it in September. At, at a theater festival in the hills of uh, California, mm -hmm. and I'll be test driving it, just the first part of it, 
in Edinburgh for an audience, free audience, and some promoters to see if they're interested in producing in the UK. So that's about it. Nothing else coming up. I did uh, a play. I did a play with Rita Rudner, the comedian Rita Rudner, and her husband Martin Bergman. They both mm. did it, and that I did a little bit That was a lot of fun. It was a farce comedy about a British acting couple, right? All uh, sort of like Ken and Emma. Yes. Break break up because character the man can't keep in his pants. Now that he's older, <laughs> and they're forced to work together because they need the money and how how bad it goes and how old behavior surfaces. <laughs> so it was it was a lot of fun because rewriting mm. the reposts the, the jags in it are just were epic and it was like with and some other people in the cast who were friends of well knew each other they worked with rita before so uh-huh. really nice yeah so i'm doing a lot of theater keeping busy mike that's what it's all about every once in a while keeping busy every once in a while i get to do a you know a sitcom or a ncis episode they need a little comedy <laughs> relief <laughs> As I was saying earlier, I absolutely love it when you when you know I love it when like your favorite comedy act or actors turn up randomly in stuff you're watching. You know you're not expecting them. <laughs> this is there. You're like, it's nice to pop up. Oh, I love it. What, I think one good thing about thing about Twitter is you can go, hey, look, I'm up in this again. It keeps you, yeah, keeps you roll, it keeps yeah. you bobbing to the surface before you do that final dive into the <laughs> dressing room. Yeah, end up in a body bag. Um, I've only died once or twice in a DC Bluestone 42, but a bomb that's supposed to be in Afghanistan. It's a BBC two. Uh-huh. I played an American CIA guy gets gets his head blown off. Oh, like five five minutes into it, like a really <laughs> arrogant American guy, and they and they were gonna have to do the whole blood pack, and they went, no, no, we'll just do the noise. The and I fall out of frame. Um, and I was like, oh, it's so getting used. Oh, it's getting ready for the the stuff to come. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even with this, you know, we're saying about the strikes and stuff earlier with the whole, you know, the advent of AI and stuff. It's it's kind of scary, isn't it? You know, what's what's happening with. Yeah, yeah, I was joking with a friend going, well, they're going to be screwed with me because most of the footage (laughs) you have of me is when I weighed 350 pounds. And now I'm very different looking. So I don't know what you're going to get on that. Going to, you know, I mean, I think already Tom Hanks and all the big Mm. names have secured deals with management, this is what we'll get paid. Yeah. And since they're the premium, just like the business has its hierarchy, they'll get that attention. But to use a bunch of people running and to use them over and over again now, mm. in the history of filmmaking in general, that's gone out without a complaint. Disney, definitely. Disney uses uh, the same frame models. Um, like you'll see Jungle Book, the Robin Hood, even the newer ones, Certain body movements. Yeah, they repeat stuff. They repeat stuff, don't they? Yeah. So they have. So it went from being uh, sheets that you looked at and did to now a full uh, frame. They took them and framed them digitally. Mm. So what's that one? You know, one blue and Mowgli. He jumps up on his back, and they can call it up and watch it, and actually lift it onto the computer digitally. Mm. Then skin skin them with new characters. Fair enough. They're all their property. It's all. you know, Mowgli's not complaining. You know, no, it's a, it's he's, a ca- he's a cartoon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But to use a human and to do that, you know, and they, and they were doing that anyway. Disney did. The Fleischer brothers did with Superman. Mm. He was all rotoscoped Superman's body. So to me, it's a form of rotoscoping. You do get paid in the business for that. If they use your body 
to rotoscope for an animated scene, like in a in the the black hole of the Disney movie. Mm. They rotoscope the actors running in front of animated, you know, the old school animated pieces and then animated them into it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, they were paid for the session and they were paid in as a portion of their salary in the film for doing that. And so that's all bundled into their fee. Mm. And then that fee is expressed in residuals. Mm. So whether, you know, you get a separate fee or a buyout, because in a way it's a, they did a buyout in the package of their fee, but the contents of the fee in residuals is are distributed evenly. So yeah, yeah. the student saves this money by not having two discrete payments mm. They're pooled together and then paid out. So yeah. I can, I can even accept that. A lot of businesses do that. Of giving you one fee and a call. Nuh-uh. Doesn't make sense, you know? does it? Even like, I, I think I heard recently about, you know, the new uh, um, Indiana Jones film, that, you know, where they make him make him yeah. younger. They got some guy who'd done all these big, famous deep fakes on YouTube, and they basically hired him to basically deep fake Harrison's face for the younger scenes. I mean, do you know what I mean? If you could do that with There's a problem. endless, endless possibilities, isn't it? It's crazy. But with Harrison Ford, it's a lengthy process, too. Yeah, yeah. He'll do it. Let's try this one. He goes, yeah, but he looks stoned. Okay, <laughs> let's try this one. No, he looks stoned in that one. Oh, here's one. Oh, he looks like he's almost stoned. I mean, you, you know, it's like, it's probably not anymore, but uh, <laughs> this is my running gag. It's like, how do you, you know? He also looks like he's just, like, toasted a big bong hit. Apocalypse. Now, apocalypse now, they ran out of hash on the set. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what all those that's what all the clouds were. <laughs> I I have nothing but love for him. He's a, he's ethically he's a wonderful man. Oh, he's, he's a he's a machine. He's a total machine. And witness mm. one in the Amish village where they go to kill the Amish kid. Yeah, yeah. That scene where he sees her bathing, it's it's so intimate and yet restrained. It's one of those things I go, you know, you don't need to do it all mm. depending on in that the law lo- the longing the yeah. immediate longing was so beautiful um and then you move on you know that it's that kind of stuff you have to really know what you're thinking you have to know what you're thinking as an mm. actor think it freely without any being either obvious self-consciousness or if you do something over six or seven times it gets airlocked without changing because there's mm. things you can't yeah. change you know you can do it the other way and change there's some directors that ain't gonna do that there's some things you just can't do it especially the the, the big CG movies where you're yeah. running around buying green stuff. Yeah. Well, ho- hopefully this strike will, the actor's strike will end sooner rather than later because, you know, yeah. the longer it goes on. I want to do a sketch about a drunk actor who's done all the Marvel Universe stuff, you know, and he's and effectively he's, he hasn't acted with another human being <laughs> for like four years, just tennis balls. <laughs> tennis ball, tennis yeah. balls on sticks. And so he's at home drinking, getting drunk, <laughs> feeling sorry for himself. He's got tennis balls on sticks around him, like Brad Pitt, <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. And he's like, well, oh, this is Sigourney. Do you remember when I worked with you? By the way, I love your hair. <laughs> like dripping out, drinking oh. liquor. Oh man, like, no, you should do that definitely. <laughs> okay, if I do it and I just shoot it, I'll send it to you. You should, you should definitely. That's a, that's a promise there, Come Mike. On. Anyway, I just there's things about my business I love. I mean. I spent one day talking with Kevin Costner's arse double. <laughs> well, why does, why does he need an arse double? He had a body double. And the guy did some of his writing. If he had to write a motorcycle, he had a certain skill set you could get Costner his double. But he had a magnificent 
saddlebags. They really were great. And uh, that shot where he's showering, you know, he's been showering in the, in the, in the, in the, in the creek. That's the butt double. Oh, and of my course, God. you know, you got to respect the guy. The guy, he's a, he's a fellow union brother oh, yeah, like yeah. me. You know, and he has this, you know, he, he was an intelligent man. But there's point, I just go to and go, so, butt double. And, butt double, yeah. Yeah. It's on the CV. Off <laughs> double. So what, are, what, are, what are the resume shots like? I mean, do you have like a couple of shots? Yeah, exactly. Like, your head uh, shot, your what? head shots are basically your ass, you know. Go <laughs> to the pipe. You know, whatever a scarf, you've got a flat cap on one, you can do Peaky Blinders, <laughs> you know. And I go, so do you have a separate agent? So I imagine this agent who's like trying to sell some guy's arse <laughs> to a film go, no, listen, I'm telling you, you know, you couldn't do it nowadays, but he butt doubled, <laughs> he butt doubled Mel Gibson and Denzel Washington. Now that's versatile. Well, that is, that is versatile, isn't yeah. it? You know. That's versatility, you know. In one, in just one, seven days, two cheeks, one week. Wow. Right? I'm telling you. you no, know, but there, there must be an agent. There's an agent out there that's just doing body, body parts. They've got all their, all their, all their clients are body, body double. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a friend, she was a hand model for many years. Made a nice bit of change. Oh, well, I heard there was a lot of money in hand, hand modeling. Well, that was it. She had her resume clothes were heard from ads showing like Dan Cleef and Arpel for like mm. jewelry and things like that. That was it, and she ran. She ran for a long time. Wow, doing that, you know. But that thing, she had to. She had to wear gloves outside for no spotting, hand spot. You know, so the minute she had about fifty-five, she had to quit because she was starting to get just natural age spots and the vein veining. And she, she goes, "You can't, you know, you can't botox." The hands, <laughs> she well, she could just do some old, old, like, la old lady hands. She could have done some old lady hands. Yeah, the reissue, we're re reissuing this purple right in there. Four and after. <laughs> oh my God! There's a name. There's a name. I watch those. I watch those Miss Marples because they oh. really play up her the, the loss of her first love in the war. Oh, that, that... and I only read one or two. Yeah. Oh, the old Agatha Christie. John Sessions oh. in one. Oh, John was in one. Oh. He was so. Oh, he was so tart in it. He was. He was this little. Oh, this little small village arts maven, and he was. You know, John's gone, oh, his brain. The stuff you never saw in his line. We're back sitting in the chair. He'd go off on something, and Proofs had just been losing his mind. Just his motor mouth intelligence. I mean, he could be a bit, you know, but he, God almighty. No, it's, you know, yeah, it's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun. Uh, you've you've um, worked, with all, worked with them all, Mike. You've worked with them all. Well, you start to feel like, you know, I did a BBC film, PV play. Mr. Mm -hmm. John Gilgood. And oh my God. With over at Acton, Space, Acton Street Studios, which is not in the middle of that, you know, industrial area. This rehearsal hall. Mm. And the top floor was a, not a dining room, not a pot, anything. Pot, basically, a, you know, three rows of chrome tubing running your. And I went, was sitting there one day and the cast of the show. So it was, um, and across the other table, from Saunders, who oh, was, did you see there's other people there, like, you know, just. All these people just eating your food, like the old days in the studio shop. Yeah, you see, yeah. You know, eating food and and uh, they put Gilga by a window and opened it so he could smoke while he ate because he smoked smoked these dark, dark, uh, dark tobacco cigarettes, beautiful like was. Smelled great. It's smoking. He'd be talking. We're you know we're asking questions. Oh my God, Edith Evans, and, you know, and Olivia and Letty and 
Oh, then there's this point where he's talking to us, and we're all loving him. It's all respectful. Mm. I said, I remember, you know, gone, gone, oh, gone. You know, and it just broke your heart. He's yeah. the last lion. Yeah. He's the last English lion of the theater here. This guy's stories. And he was so nice to me. We had scenes together, and uh, somebody interviewed me for something. And I said, well, frankly, God, yeah, I'm in awe of it. All right? Yeah, who wouldn't be? Mm. And the next day I come in, and he comes up behind me, and he goes, Mr. McShane, I've heard that you're in awe of me. Henceforth, I'll, I'll try not to be quite so awesome. Oh, and my he, God. And he gave me a, gave me a little wink, and I was like, <sighs> so... Yeah, I've been I've been I've been put put in in the same bus with a lot of amazing people mm. who, with the exception, really only one or two, have been nothing but beautiful. And the one or two of them, you know, everything you know, everybody has a bad day in a week. <laughs> Deal with somebody like that, okay. <laughs> and I've probably been that to and I've been that to other actors probably. So you know, graciously they've they've excised me from their anecdotes, and I will not put them into mine. Um, I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll hear about them from future guests. Maybe saying what a what an arsehole Mike McShane was. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the list. <laughs> oh, baby. Anyway, oh yeah. What is it? Uh, John Le, John uh, Le Miserere. Yes, yes. Oh my god! Absolutely his, loved loved his work. His famous. I guess his famous last words were: "He was on his deathbed." And he was kind of going in and out. And he turned and his friends were there. And he looked at me and he goes, it's all been rather lovely, hasn't it? And I go, that's a good good space to be in. Like, I think you're, yeah. yeah. That's part of your, your gift. Your, yeah, your definitely. Gift. No, I mean, you like the legacy of, you know, even like the legacy you, you ha- you've left behind. I mean, I'm not saying that, do you know what I mean? You've still got many, many years ahead of you, Mike. <laughs> but I mean, your body of work, you <laughs> your body of yes. work is incredible. Do you know what I mean? As I said, I'm such a such a huge, yes. huge fan of your work. And, and, and just think of the amount of pallbearers it's going to take to carry <laughs> my body of work when I'm out of here. <laughs> They'll have McAlpine. Uh, McAlpine on the coffin. Yeah, they'll all be hover, hover coffins by then, Lee Mike. Rick you know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but thank you so much for so chatting with me out, today, you, Mike. Are you out of London? I'm in Dublin. I'm in Dublin. I'm in Dublin. Say hello to O'Connell straight for me. Oh, I will. I will. Yeah, I'm here 20 years. What's it? The the International Bar? Yes. I got to play there. Oh. had a great time. Mm. I think I saw you. But last time you were here, I think I saw you at Vicar Street with Paul, I think. I'll tell you, I got a photo somewhere. My dad was 90. We took him. We went to Johnny Fox's. Chores Bar for Americans. But it's great. And there's some old. He was dancing with them. I'd never seen him like this. And we left, and there was a, a van pulled up, and for we were going to get that for the cab. Guys and these gals and guys, kids were in there. They're going. And they recognize me. And they go, "Oh, it's my machine!" Yeah, and they're hammered, and they're just. <laughs> and they go, "Who's?" And they go, "Who's that?" They point to him, and they go, "Who's that?" I go, "That's my dad." And they go, and they grabbed him. Nine years old. Pulled yeah. him in the van, and I got my camera, and I got to shut him in the back of a van with all these kids, like, going, oh he's man, like, he's losing it. He's so happy. Uh, makes me emotional. That's the memories so you want, well. though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Stuff like that. It's it's incredible. But yeah, I think I saw you. You were walking down outside Vicar Street, and I was like, oh, 
I'd, I'd love to have said hello to you, but I was too, I was too shy to say oh. hi to you. Maybe in the future, and whenever you're back, whenever you're back in Ireland again, I'll have to. I'll stand, I'll stand you no pint. Oh, definitely, definitely. But thank you again, Mike, for for chatting with me today. It's been a, a pleasure. <laughs>